Ladies and gentlemen, recorded in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. It's time for Fight Night Picks with your host, Frank and Matt Allen. And just like that, we're back. We're getting set for UFC 284 coming at you from Perth, Western Australia. The first time the UFC has gone back to Australia since UFC 243 back in Melbourne at the Marvel Stadium. You had Whitaker versus Adesanya and the first card back in Perth since UFC 221. That was when Yoel Romero gave Luke Rockhold the smoochie An smooch. intimate moment in the cage. A very intimate moment if we've ever seen one. As always, one half your host to do a Craig Allen. Twitter and Instagram at Craig Allen FNP with me to my left to your right Raptor super fan I really am Matt Allen respective socials at Matt Allen FNP and Matt Allen FNP last weekend UFC fight night Spivak versus Lewis we hit that one on the head it was a big time night there big time results and we're looking to parlay that forward with this card 13 total fights on the card two title fights up at the top Alexander Volkanovsky taking on Islam Makachev number one pound for pound Volkanovsky number two pound Pretty for pound Makachev. These are big time numbers. This is Islam Makachev's first title defense after he won the lightweight belt at UFC 280. And for Volkanovski, four successful title defenses since he captured that belt over Max Holloway. His last time out, he really just sealed the deal. 50-45s all across the board, beating Holloway there. But if you look down through this card with Volkanovski challenging for the lightweight belt, creates a little bit of a logjam. First interim featherweight title fight since... Max Holloway fought Anthony Pettis at UFC 206. You have Emmett taking on Yair Rodriguez. Both those guys 9-2 and two in the UFC. The 1-0 contest for Yair Rodriguez. The eye poke against Jeremy Stevens. He avenged that fight not that long after. But you look down through this card. Nine Australians on the card. Five UFC debuts. And there's only three ranked fighters outside of those champions in Rodriguez, Emmett, and Jimmy Crute. The return of the Brute. So Matt... This is one of those cards. There's kind of everything for everyone. And you can really look forward to some of these prospects that are featured in the prelims. This card's like an iceberg. You know, the top's going to get all the shine. But I think the bottom 80% is where a lot of the notoriety is going to come from. Because like you said, there are a lot of exciting prospects that we do get on this card. And we get a lot of prospects who are kind of making their transition to trying to become real contenders too. Like, Jack Della Madalena has had his time to, okay, you're a prospect. We're all really excited about you. If you're fighting Randy Brown, though, like, that is a very difficult fight and a huge step up in competition. That's a very fun fight, and I just think that co-main event is so much fun between Yair Rodriguez and Josh Emmett. Does it really have to be for a title? Not really. I do like that they are giving it at least a five-round atmosphere, because that's going to be an incredible fight between those guys. We've seen them both tested against many of the fighters in the top 15 at this point, but they both have such unique skill sets that I'm very curious to see how they're going to look when they're tested against each other. Yeah, and you do look at this. I mean, Josh Emmett's last time out against Calvin Cater. Did he win? Didn't he win? Really close fight. It was a fight of the night. Yair Rodriguez... Had a good outing against Brian Ortega, and then the shoulder injury kind of took away. So both of these guys get to really settle the score for gold. You know it with Fight Night Picks. So we're going to throw it on over to the Fight of the Night screen. 13 total fights. You're not wrong until Saturday night. Let us know who you have in the Fight of the Night screen. Let us know down below in the comment section who you've got. It's time for the Fight of the Night with Fight Night Picks. So we just referenced how fun it could be. Yair Rodriguez taking on Josh Emmett. Josh Emmett in a Fight of the Night his last time out against Calvin Cater for Yair Rodriguez. 
no stranger to the old been fight of two. the Knights. He's been in one a time or two, and he's one of those guys that, in somewhat recent memory, he won the, the, the double bonus. You don't see those very often against the Korean Zombie fight of the night and performance bonus for that up elbow knockout that he had. But both of these guys, they don't know a boring fight. Josh Emmett, one of the most prolific knockdown artists, tied for number one all-time in featherweight history with... Jeremy Stevens, he probably doesn't want to hear that. With 11 knockdowns and 11 UFC fights, this should be a great one while it lasts. I'm as excited for this fight as I am any fight we've had on this calendar year so far. I just think it's such a fun matchup because for Yair Rodriguez, he was kind of the golden boy for a little while. Like, the UFC was really pushing him, and he didn't live up to expectations early on. But the fun thing about Rodriguez is people questioned if he had that dog in him. But I do think his recent resurgence has proved that when the going gets tough, this guy gets pretty tough. Like, go back and watch the fight with Max Holloway. I know it's a loss on his record, but there's few losses in the UFC where you can gain more stock in the UFC uh, fans' mind than what Yair was able to do against Max Holloway. And for Josh Emmett, like you said, some of the best power we have seen south of 155, honestly, like Josh Emmett does have kind of that pound-for-pound power to where when he hits you, it completely changed the outlook of the fight. So I think this is such an incredible fight. I really do. Well, you're trying to make a second selection. There's so many bangers on the undercard. Joshua Kulibau is taking on Melzik Bogdazarian. Matt makes a weird face, but for Kulibau about his last time out one of those fight of the night contenders against Sung Woo Choi goes out there drops him continuously and he's taking on a fellow striker in Melzik Bogdazarian a guy who has had some injuries he's had some layoffs he took on Bruno Souza in his last fight in his UFC debut he did look very very good but Bogdazarian all the accolades and kickboxer or kickboxing former WLF Wars kickboxing champ he challenged for K1 welterweight title as well if this stays standing these two guys are absolute bangers it should be fun at least in the first five minutes. I think this is one of the more heavyweight, non-heavyweight fights that we'll ever have, especially in the, I guess, pre-Zufa era, or pre- what was it even called? Pre-WEC merger, I guess, before there was featherweight and bantamweight, because these guys do have incredible power, especially early on in the fight. I'll be curious to see, though, how the movement of Bogdazarian does translate, especially as this fight moves on, because he's a guy who will move his feet quite a bit, but this should be a really interesting fight earlier on in the prelims that hopefully generates interest, because like I said, this is a very top-heavy pay-per-view, it feels like, and there's some pay-per-views that, hey, the top two title fights might not be as good as these two, and let's be honest, these are two of the better title fights we're going to get this year. It's just, they did kind of skip out on the rest of this card, it feels like. Well, Matt, let us know down below in the comments section who you have in the fight of the night. 13 fights, you're not going to get it wrong till Saturday night. Comment below, fight of the night. So some wonky UFC debuts and some very, very telling UFC debuts. We go down through it. Replacing Joel Alvarez against Zubera Takugov. We have Brazil's Elvis Brenner. That is definitely a good fight. We have Argentina's 20-year-old phenom, Francisco Prado, making a replacement for Nazareth Hawkprost and taking on Jamie Mullerkey. And then we get to the meat of the bone. We have Blake Builder, Dana White's Contender Series contract winner, got a big-time first-round win against fellow Canadian Alex Morgan on the season. He's going to be taking on Smokin' Shane Young, a guy who's been on the shelf for a little bit. We also have the UFC debuts of Shannon Ross, a guy who got the tar beat out of him, but he never stopped coming forward True. against Venetia Salvador on Contender Series. Gets knocked out, still gets a contract. Gets, append gets his appendix removed right after the fight. Still gets a contract. And then, of course, a guy that looks like the Australian Morgan Wallen with the stash and the mullet. Thought you should know, Matt, that we have a guy in Jack Jenkins taking on Don Shanus. So a lot of debuts, a lot of fighters to look forward to, and a lot of Morgan Wallen references for me to drop in that video. 
Interesting. I'm really excited for Jimmy Crew versus Alonzo Menafield too. I just want to give that fight a bit of a highlight because those are two guys who are sort of unheralded contenders, if you will, but that's a wide open division right now. You've got Glover just retired. Yuri's still getting ready from or getting back from his injury. We don't really know what the next title fight's going to be. You assume it's Ankalaya versus Jamal Hill, but I think the 205 division, as much as any, is wide open right now. So that's a really important fight. If Crute or Metafield can look really impressive in that matchup, maybe they can kind of jump the queue and get themselves into maybe a title eliminator type matchup. I know that seems kind of wild, but 205 is a wide open division, and that's a marquee matchup on the main card. Well, of a big time card with pay per view, uh, you know, bragging rights on the line, UFC 284, pound for pound greats in that main event. Make sure you check out Question Mark Kicks Saturday. Record scratch. That's going to be an earlier show. So make sure you tune your clocks for that one. You're subscribed. You know when we go live. I'm away Saturday night and pretty well all the weekend. So things are going to be a little bit different there. But a big time card nonetheless. Make sure you check out the action at Fight Night Picks as well on Instagram and Twitter. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. And it's lightweights to kick off the card. Coming up this weekend, we have Habib Nurmagomedov's Ride or Die. It's Warrior Zubair Takugov taking on a short-notice replacement in Brazil's Elvis Brenner, representing Shoot the Box Diego Lima. You're going to see a lot of Brenner on the social medias with Charles Oliveira, the former champion in this division. And if you look at it for both these guys, a very interesting fight. Originally, it was supposed to be Zubair Takugov taking on Spanish phenom Joel Alvarez, but it was reported on January 13th that out was Alvarez and in steps Brenner that was reported by Red Fury MMA no offense to them but it was the first time I heard of them on Twitter a very very small Twitter page breaking that news but if you do look at it overall Matt this fight is a little bit of a head scratcher to start off the card because Zubayo Takigov is a little bit of a wild card. He struggled with weigh-ins throughout his career. He struggled with injuries. He struggled with the UFC 229 post-fight melee where he punched Conor McGregor. And if you look at it, like against Lucas Almeida, he had a really hard time making weight. They were supposed to fight last year against Hakeem Dawadu. He weighed in, what, four pounds over the limit of featherweight? So if you look at it for Takigov, this fight says on topology that it's a featherweight. But on the UFC website, on SureDog, everywhere else, it says it's at lightweight. And I tend to think that, yes, it will be at lightweight. But if you just consider it, Matt, we don't really look at the topology rankings. But if you do look at it this way, Takugov, 25th ranked worldwide lightweight. Uh, the Brazilian, Elvis Brenner, 41st ranked Brazilian lightweight on the regional scene. Your thoughts? Uh, there's some really good fighters in Brazil. So to his credit, I'm sure that's a really good pool. But it is a huge step up in competition of what you're speaking on. This is the thing about Zubair Takugov, though. He is always a massive favorite in every single one of his fights. He's one of these fighters who always gets the odd maker's respect. And if we're just talking about skills, I really can't detract anything from Takugov. He is an extremely skilled MMA fighter. But there does always seem to be an O by the way with him. And, and those do add up over time. And that's why with me, I always feel like Zubair Takugov's one bad night away from being one of these like massive upsets that we end up talking about for months and years after, really. Because Takugov... He's dominant without finishes, and that's always a really interesting position to be in because he is so skilled. Like I said, he's got the grappling. He does have pretty good striking. Like, he has fast hands. He has active hands. He might not be the most active fighter in general, but when he does let his hands go, he is very effective with them. It's just there are bouts of inactivity throughout some of his fights. There are moments where he'll kind of get behind in the fights. If you go back to the Hakeem Dawadu fight, it's not that Dawadu was putting it on him per se. It was just that Dawadu would throw in combination and make Takugov think a lot throughout the matchup. And when you're making Takugov, 
Kentucky Gobs think, it's at least preventing him from throwing a lot offensively himself. So I do think there's at least a bit of a roadmap for Brenner to have some success. It's just being your UFC debut on short notice against a guy who is so well-rounded, who doesn't necessarily have that one massive hole that we can say, oh, Brenner can go out there and take advantage of. I do see this as being a very difficult debut because in a lot of these debuts, when we have a massive underdog against someone who's a big favorite, at least they'll have that one area of their game where we go, okay, if they can get it to that one spot, they can have success. I'm not really sure where Brenner can keep this fight for prolonged periods of time to where he can go out there and win rounds. Well, and that's the scary thing about it. Like, you look at our graphic, and I was a little cheeky with it, but I put the style at the bottom. And, of course, it's Brenner's UFC debut. And I put Muay Thai, and you might go, well, Craig, he's got 13 wins. 11 of them are by submission. Why would you put my Muay Thai as a style? Because all of the fights take place with that classic shoot the box Muay Thai striking style until he gets the takedown or his opponent takes him down and then he's able to sweep and implement his own jiu-jitsu and if you look at it for Zubaira Takigov master of sport in combat sambo and hand-to-hand combat Takigov is one of those interesting guys because again as I say ride or die with Habib and the team out of Dagestan but if you look at it he's trained at American Kickboxing Academy but he's a long time guy at a Tiger Muay Thai with the Ashgabah brothers he's always out there doing his piddly little dances with Roger Huerta and the others and for Takugov, like I said, injuries have slowed his pace. He's had weigh-in issues at featherweight. He had a two-year suspension from 2016 to 2018 for Osterin. Don't take those PEDs, pals. And if you look at it for Brenner, though, I mean, again, you see the pictures that he has out there with Charles Oliveira. You go down through some of the fights. Not really the greatest level of competition, the guys that he's fought. And of the losses, he lost a Brazilian journeyman, Denis Silva, Guy who's kind of fought a who's who. He loses to uh, Copino journeyman, Sergey Andreev. And then his last loss was by decision to the now LFA featherweight champ in Gabriel Santos. Santos is a good fighter. He is a very good fighter, but you go down through a lot of the tape. If you look at it for Brenner, he really does like to get the body locked. Then he goes for trips. It's a lot of upper body throws and takedowns. Hard to do against the guy that has that combat sambo base. And for Brenner, he's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu brown belt. And he can really utilize that well in a lot of his fights. But again, going down through all of these fights, the guys that he has fought. Like, you look at his last fight against Victor Nunez. I mean, that was a guy that hadn't fought since 2019. They square off in 2022. Nunez was 3-1. So you're fighting a much lower level of competition. You go out there and get the win that you're supposed to get. But it is a really tough one. And then I went down through a lot of these ones. Like, you look at his fight that he had in 2018 against Luan Anderson. He gets nearly finished in some of these fights. Like, there could have been a 10-8 round out there. This is kind of how I look at fighters on the regional level making their way to the UFC. Like what you said, there are some guys who, hey, you're supposed to beat them, so go out there and win in impressive fashion or by finish. A lot of these guys' resumes are kind of like college basketball teams getting ready for March Madness, though. Like, yes, the wins and the losses are important, and you have to look at them, but you really have to do dissect their level of competition, too. And that's why there's these, like, big rankings committees that then throw all these teams together. It is really difficult to get a real good sense as to how good these prospects are until you do see them a few times against that really upper echelon levels of competition. I just think for Brenner, this is a real big step too far in his Yeah, it, it really is tough, and he seems to get hit by just about every left hand that comes to him in a lot of these fights on the regional scene. So the odds in this one, Takigov is a massive favorite. Open minus 500, minus 505 right now. Brenner open plus 375, plus 370. We have a look on topology for the votes. Surprised us there to you. I'm going to say over under 85% Takigov. He is a big favorite. Probably over, yeah. Probably over. It is wow. over. 613 total votes, 96% Takugov, 73% by decision. I know we've set it up in such a way. We usually try and give both guys an avenue to win for Brenner. 
Obviously, his jiu-jitsu and MMA is very good. To me, he's not necessarily to the same level as, like, even Ricardo Hamosh, which is Takigov's last exactly. fight. So for Takigov, first fight in a meaningful period of time, over a year since he took on Hamosh. Now he's forced to move up to 155. I do have Takigov in this one. I think he's a more active striker, and I think he can kind of dictate where this fight will take place with decent takedown defense. We saw him against Lerone Murphy have that draw and struggle in some of those in-betweens, so maybe Brenner's able to capitalize on the game plan that Murphy's thrown out there. But I do like Tucky Gov in the matchup. I also like Tucky Gov in the matchup. Again, he is so well-rounded. It's really hard to figure out, okay, where's the one area he is going to struggle with a lot? Because even in the grappling, I think he can hold his own and scramble quite a bit. And I think that'll be important because if you do get into a set position with a guy like Brenner, that's when he can kind of get a feel, really adjust some of his submissions and then try to get a hold of them. I still think he's going to get that opportunity against Tucky Gov. But this is a big step up in competition and a huge uh, opportunity for Brenner. And like I said with Yair Rodriguez against Max Holloway, how he looked really good in a loss, maybe Brenner could have a similar performance that way. Both of us going with the man who hit Conor McGregor with a right hook and was pulled from a co-main event slot in Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada. It's Warriors, Zubar, Takigov to get the win. A big time card headlined by the top two pound for pound fighters in the main event. You're not going to want to miss. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. UFC 284, the lone New Zealander on the card, coming off a near two-year layoff. We have Smokin' Shane Young, representing City Kickboxing, taking on the former CFFC featherweight champ, Dana White's Contender Series contract winner, L Animal, Blake Builder, a guy who's originally out of Minnesota, trains out a sub-fighter over in California. He's been getting rounds in at 10th Planet Las Vegas for this fight, training with some great fighters over there. And we talked about that gym a lot. Really, Casey Halstead and the crew, they don't necessarily get the credit that they deserve. But for Blake Builder, a big-time opportunity. And you look at that win that he had over on Dana White's Contender Series. And I know going into that fight, we talked about how good Alex Morgan was, his opponent, a former TKO featherweight champ a guy that trains at a tri-star and for builder he just kind of had to find his rhythm in that fight which is really the story of every single blake builder fight but i say he had to find his rhythm he landed a couple of really nice shots landed a glancing right hand that really stunned morgan and at the same time that he stunned him Oh my gosh, Morgan goes down a little bit, Builder just jumps to the back, and like a spider monkey, he's able to sink in that choke and get the tap, and for Builder, a really good opportunity. Now, Dana White after that fight said exactly what I expected Dana White to say, and I quote, I'm going to start with Blake, and I guess the best way to start with Blake is, I'm not looking for 32-year-olds. Dana White, ladies and gentlemen, said the same thing about Trey Ogden on Dana White's looking for a fight. And then they, of course, signed him. So for Blake Builder, he's a guy that did get started in MMA. Well, not that young. Like, he did get started as an amateur quite a while ago, way back in 2012. And he went 7-0 as an amateur, 7-0-1 as a pro. That started in 2018. But you go back and you watch a lot of these Blake Builder fights, and I don't need to tell you this about rallying back in the fights. He fights with some smaller organizations, regional scene, and then he goes and fights with CFFC about a year ago. Now, last year was wild for him. He takes on Frank Buenafuente. He gets the win there, wins the belt, and then he defends it against Hegevaldo Carvalho. Now, neither one of those guys, Buenafuente was taking that fight on a day's notice. He was supposed to be on the prelims, then he's all the way into the main event. And Carvalho, neither one of those guys were necessarily the highest of touted fighters, and Builder almost got finished by both of them very, very early on. And that's the wild thing about a guy like Blake Builder. To the highest degree, it does remind you a little bit of a Michael Chandler in just this respect. If he hits you, you are going down. If he gets on your back, you are getting choked out. 
But if you land a big power shot up the middle while he's going for some of those bigger actions, you can also have some uh, some success of your own, right? It just really comes down to how confident are you standing in the pocket against a guy like Blake Builder? Because if you're able to stand there, be educated, just be present, I guess, the term that I'm looking for, and be able to throw your own combinations, you should be able to have success against a guy like Blake Builder if you can avoid some of those bigger shots because he does leave himself open. Some of those uppercuts can land. Some of the hooks around the guard can land too. He doesn't have the most educated of defenses to where he's going to be making making you miss and be slipping all of your shots, but that's the about a guy like Shane Young. He's going to try to be on the outside a little bit more, and he's not as comfortable from that set pocket position as I think a guy like Blake Builder will be. So I'm very curious to see how Shane Young's going to dictate pace and just his distance in this fight, because I think Young is the better kicker, and I do think he can have more success some of his straight shots on the back foot with his uh, counterattack. I'm just curious to see how many of Builder's shots he can stand up to, because it's like the old Doris Burke in 2K12 pound the rock. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. If Blake Builder's first hook doesn't knock you down or out, that's fine. The second, third, fourth, and fifth are all going to be there, and he does have great finishing instincts. It's not like a guy like Jeff Neal, who's going to be very reserved and pick his shots, but when Builder has you hurt, he's going to throw a lot at you, and we have seen Young struggle with some of that adversity and some of that aggression in his UFC tenure up until that point, so I think this is a really good debut for a guy like Builder. We just talked about Zabiru Takugov fighting uh, Brenner, and how that's probably a little bit of a step too far, in your debut, I think this is a much better matchup. Yeah, for Shane Young, looking for his first win in years. I mean, it's been a really weird run for Shane Young. Obviously, now he somewhat quasi trains with the guy that he fought in his UFC debut in Alexander Volkanovsky. Has some really, really good wins against Orlando D and Austin Arnett. It was a fight of the night against D, a two round banger, but it was the elbows that were able to get him the win. The first one lands and just cuts him up completely. The second one lands like the forearm and the elbow. And that's pretty well all she wrote. But after that fight and the big time, he just put the pressure on Austin Arnett, dropped him at the very end of that fight. He takes on Ludwig Klein and gets finished early. He takes on a well-rounded Omar Morales and he can't really figure out the game plan. He looked kind of just static in that one. I won't say he looked worse in the Omar Morales fight than he did in the Klein fight because he got finished so early in the Klein fight, but you know what I mean when I say that. Like, the Omar Morales fight, Young just kind of looked flat. Like, Morales hurt him with that knee up the middle. He just kind of dominated him throughout a lot of that matchup. And for Young, I was maybe not the highest on him before the Klein fight, but even after the Klein fight, I thought, okay, Omar Morales is a fun matchup. That's a good litmus test for both guys. An important fight for both guys neither one of them were necessarily on the best track of their careers. I just think for Young, he really needs this one. Like, if the Omar oh. Morales fight was the, hey, let's figure out where you are in the division, the Blake Builder fight is, hey, do you still belong in this division? Well, and that's it. For Blake Builder, you go back and watch those fights, and I mean, in the fight against Buenafuente, gets dropped twice in the first round. The fight that he has... In the next title, defense gets dropped in the first round as well. For Shane Young, looking for his first win since 2019, that fight against Austin Arnett. And of course, Arnett and D no longer in the UFC. So we have a look at the odds in the matchup. Young, a minus 130 favorite. Builder at a plus 110. We have a look at the topology votes, Matt. Surprise to us as they are to you. I think they'll be close. Yeah, Young slightly favored, but I'm still I'm gonna say over under 62.5% builder. Just uh -huh. on the on the win streak. He's never lost a fight prone amateur. I think it'll be under. I think it'll be very close to 50. It's gonna be very close. Wait. 616 total votes, 86% builder, 57% by decision, 32% by submission. Matt, Shane Young is chopped liver with the fans over on topology. And for me. Young's got a great shot first round, even second round against a guy like Builder to really capitalize on some of those defensive mistakes that Builder can make. Because for Builder, you talk about it. 
He starts to roll as the fight goes on, and in five-round fights, it's perfect. Like, I think Blake Builder, doesn't matter if you're 32, it doesn't matter about the five-round fights. I do think he has really good cardio, and oh. he's one of those guys that, like, he just gets flash knocked down, like Michael Chandler, but he just, he's got that dog in him. So, if you do look at the matchup, Matt, do I think Blake Builder's going to host the next season of The Ultimate Fighter after Chandler McGregor? Probably not, but do I think he's got an opportunity in the fight? Sure. It's just a big reset for Shane Young, and obviously that's where your question marks come from. Exactly, and that's the thing. Normally, I would pick the person who has more UFC experience, whether or not they've been successful at that level, because I really do think experience is an important thing at the UFC level. You're fighting other guys who've made it to the biggest organization. They have been much more battle-tested than a lot more of the fighters you're going to fight in the regional scene. But Young really didn't impress me in that Omar Morales fight. No, Omar's a guy who I don't think is on the front nine of his career, if I'm putting it extremely lightly. So even though I've seen Blake Builder be tested against some not great fighters, and that's the big thing. I don't think Blake Builder's going to have the highest ceiling in the world. I think he can have a lot of fun fights in the UFC. But again, I do worry about where he is going to end up in the overall hierarchy of the division. I do like him in this matchup, though. I think he can get on the inside and make the fight uncomfortable for Shane Young. And I think that's a really important thing you have to do if you want to beat a guy like Shane Young. And I think Shane Young with his striking acumen. He's going to be expecting the takedowns from Builder, but as I mentioned, Builder spent part of this camp and I listened to an interview that he did not that long ago with Ryan Gerald, so make sure you check that one out, All Access MMA. But in that one, Builder touches on the fact that he had that camp in Vegas, but he also, from his Instagram, got his Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt from Felipe Fagoli at Trinfo... Triunfo Jiu-Jitsu and MMA. That was this past Saturday. So a week before he fights Shane Young, he gets his BJJ black belt. And if he goes out there like a guy who fought on his week of Dana White's Contender Series this past summer, like a Rabisti, Mateo Shrombeski, and just goes out there from the start and tries to implement that game plan, or at least disguise it with some of his strikes, I think the builder has that advantage on the ground, and I think he can use that to win out against Shane Young. That must be a great confidence builder, getting your black belt a week before an MMA fight. Like, not that I think he's going to go out there and just become I'm Damian Maya all of a sudden, but you're in a pretty good headspace going into an MMA fight if you just got your black belt the week before. But I also have Builder. Both of us going with L Animal, Blake Builder, to get the win. Big time card coming up this weekend. UFC 284. Keep it locked in with Fight Name Picks. We always say, let's get into it. In a matchup at Strawweight, coming up this weekend, the most successful graduate of John Nutt's Full Metal Dojo. We have... Loma Lukbunmi taking on military college graduate Elise Reed, the former CFFC champ. And for Elise Reed, I mean, she was really able to just hit the ground running from her amateur career to the pros and just had quick success. Beat really good fighters on the regional scene. Had a title fight against Jasmine Jazdavizius. They're both in the UFC now. Had a title fight against Hillary Rose, who was featured on Dana White's Contender Series and fought a decent level of competition. So over there with CFFC, you look at the other fight that she had. She fought Jillian DeCourcy, who's kind of the hotness over with Invicta right now. And of course, the pro debut, Bellator. 231 against bubblegum star Rebecca Brigman, aka Orion Star. But Matt, for Elise Reed in the UFC, short notice debut against one Sajara Eubanks. And this is what I have to cut in. No, I told everybody who would listen that was a tough matchup for. This is when Matt gets to pat himself on the back. People were like, hey, Elise Reed's the hotness. And I said, no. There's an older lady in the division named Sajara Eubanks who can grapple with the best of them. And she looked really good in that performance, but that was a weird matchup. Like, that's what we speak about, just people making their debuts in the UFC 
UFC. Not that Sajara Eubank's the greatest fighter of all time, but that was a big step up in competition for Elise it, it was too. It was a bridge too soon, and it was really short notice. So then Reed goes out, enemy territory, fights in the UK against Corey McKenna, beats her by split decision. Weird the fact that a judge gave two rounds to McKenna. She loses to Sam Hughes, then her last time out beats Melissa Martinez. Matt, I have this to say about Elise Reed. Uh, she's a black belt in Taekwondo. She really owns kickside martial arts. Owned a gym at 25. That's very, very impressive. In Princeton, New Jersey, of all places. Fancy stuff right there. But for Elise Reed, Matt, as good as she is at defending takedowns in certain fights and as good as she is at distance keeping things standing, I have no f***ing idea what she's going to do from fight to fight. And I have no idea how she matches up stylistically with the women that are outside of the top 15. We talk about this sometimes in like baseball, about how small market teams have to find the small margins in which they can take advantage of to then go out and win games. Because they don't have the resources that some of these other bigger teams have to just go out and get really good players. Elise Reed in this matchup has to play the margins. And this is why. Stylistically, these are somewhat similar fighters. I know Reed's more Taekwondo, a little bit more point fightery. Whereas Loma Lukbunmi is going to go for for some slightly more damaging techniques, really sit down on her kicks more. But I do think if Reed can use her footwork to the best of her ability and use the slight physical advantages that she will uh, possess in this matchup, I do think Elise Reed can win this fight. I, again, I'm not completely writing her off because she is such a skilled fighter. And like what I said about some of these other fights in the card, it's not that uh, her style is so much different to Loma Lukbunmi's where, oh wow, her uh, big weakness is something Loma can completely take advantage of. Yes, Loma has shown more wrestling in her UFC tenure, but she's not some division one All-American by any means. Now. So, I think for Reed, if she can keep it on the feet like she has been able to demonstrate in some of her UFC fights, she is a very, very good striker. But the problem is, she has such a big Achilles heel that we've seen up until this point. Yes, the takedown defense is good, but if the takedown defense fails, it's the inability to get back up to her feet that really does concern me because Loma has decent, just basic takedowns. And if she gets them, she's not the most active fighter, which normally you might see as a negative. But in a matchup like this, I kind of think Loma could just stay in full guard, stay in half guard, be the heavier fighter on top and win rounds that way. And I know that's a weird thing to say coming from Muay Thai fighters. Well, and if you look at it for Reed, her last time out, she takes on the former Combate Strawweight champ, the undefeated fighter, Melissa Martinez. I thought Martinez had a decided advantage on the feet and Martinez looked like a shell of what I saw on the Mexican scene. And if you look at it for uh, Conklak Sufisara, a.k.a. Loma Lukbunmi, she grew up in a Muay Thai gym. She's a, a very, very decorated striker. And if you look at the loss that she had outside of the UFC with Full Metal Dojo, she gets taken down in one of the worst arm bars you're going to find out there. But in the UFC... Debut against Angela Hill. That was a bridge too far. She got outstruck in that one. But then she beat some decent fighters. She beat Shinyu Fry and looked great in the first round. Rallied through that fight. Beat Sam Hughes. So MMA Mass says that Loma's going to beat uh, Elise Reed. And then you look at it. She loses to Lupe Godinez, the bigger fighter who was able to out-wrestle her. But her last time out back in the fall... Loma Lukbunmi completely outgrappled D. Gomes, and I didn't see that happening in that fight. I thought if they're going to strike, Loma's got a big advantage. Loma's added to this wrestling grappling, and the big thing for her is the switch from Tiger Muay Thai or, you know, Lukbunmi Muay Thai gym with her parents to following the Hickman brothers to Bangtao, getting to train with Zhang Wei Li, and really continuing to progress in her MMA skills. And I love to see that for a young fighter like I do too, but I will say though, Loma did get in some sticky situations in that last fight. I know she was good when she got in top position, but 
When she had to defend some submission, she would just give up that top position trying to roll out of things, and that does concern me moving forward. I do agree with you. I like that she is adding more elements to her game. I just don't know if those elements at this point have been brought up to speed to where her striking is, because I do think that, were, that there were some skills shown in her last fight that some, for, or some future opponents could take advantage of. Like, I'm trying to think. Like, uh, Sam Hughes isn't a great example, but even think about Corey Mechanic, because she's looked better as of late. Like, her submissions are at the level to where if she could get looked with me down, you would think, okay, maybe she could continue to threaten and just stay in that top position from that. That's the only thing about Luke Bimini's grappling that does concern me. Yeah, if you want to go by the numbers, negative strike differential for Elise Reed and for uh, Luke Bimini over Reed, 4.21 strikes landed per minute to 2.774 Reed. So Luke Bimini, the more offensive fighter with her output. We have a look at the odds. Luke Bimini is a pretty big favorite in the matchup. She's almost a 3-1 to favorite. We have a look at the topology votes. Surprise to us, they are to you. I think the fans are going to go along with the favorite in the matchup and look with me so i'm gonna say over under 80 percent look with me i think they'll be under i think they're gonna be under in this one they're over 671 total votes 88 percent look with me 91 percent by decision 12 percent for reed with 77 percent of the reed voters going with her to win by decision and Matt, I say this when I look at this matchup. I didn't think Elise Reed was going to have a shot against Melissa Martinez. She proved me wrong. I've had a really bad read on Elise Reed, get it, in the UFC. So I've had a hard time trying to go with these fights. Because again, on the back foot, she's a really tricky striker, which she you is. don't see a lot in MMA, fighting off the back foot and you having success. And when Elise Reed is pressured is when she can really have a lot of, you know, good opportunities. So in a fight like this with Loma pushing a pace, landing those kicks, she really does like the land of the body into the legs. She'll mix it to the head every now and again. I'm eager to see if Look When Me or if Reed, if either decide to wrestle. In this one, I'm going to go with the, the striking advantage and Look When Me, but it should be a fun fight with two fighters that are really trying to crack their way into the top 15. This is my big thing about Loma Look When Me. She has uh, shown more skills, especially as her UFC careers progress. But other than Angela Hill, I would say her four other opponents are all kind of on that same level. I would like to see her get another step up in competition at a certain point because when you're just kind of fighting a bunch of other fighters who are kind of in that you know, debut level, let's just call it, or in around that part where you're just a 500 fighter. We're not really learning that much about you fight in and fight out. It would be nice to see Look Bunmi get another step up in competition if she is able to beat Reed, but I agree with you. I've also got Loma. Both of us going with Look Bunmi to get the win. Can Elise Reed shock the world? Let us know down below in the comments section who you have. UFC 284 headline by Makachev versus Volkanovski. You're not going to want to miss. Keep it locked in with Fight Name Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. Southeastern Australia stand up. You got an opportunity to see your guy compete in his UFC debut. We have Dana White's Contender Series contract winner, Far Jack Jenkins, the former Eternal Champ, makes the walk representing Australia, taking on Massachusetts' own Seamus Don Shameless. Both guys looking for their respective UFC win number one. And if you look at it for Seamus in his UFC debut, took that on a couple of weeks' notice, replaced Giga Chikadze against then number 12th ranked UFC featherweight Sadiq Youssef. They went in there, plum clinch. And it was the knees of Yusuf to the body shots of Sheamus. Yusuf was able to win out in the matchup. It was a giant step way too soon for Sheamus. I don't know if you guys know this, but Sadiq Yusuf's one of the best fighters at 145 pounds, which just so happens to be one of the best divisions in the UFC. So yeah, I would say that's a step too far into UFC debut. That's what I don't get sometimes. Like... 
UFC sometimes does a great job promoting their young fighters, and then other times doesn't whatsoever. And just for Don Shanus, and that's what I worry about, and I guess that was the original question I wanted to pose to you. Are they just trying to build up Jack Jenkins with this matchup? And it sucks to say something like that, but for Don Shanus, he had a very short flash in the pin in his UFC debut, got matched up against, like I said, one of the best fighters in the division. Plus 700 underdog with Shanus. Exactly. So not a lot of people were expecting Shanus to win, and now he's fighting a guy in his home country who has a lot of hype behind him, who is one of those flashy prospects that I think the UFC could promote quite well. I'm just worried that that's what this fight kind of falls into. It really is a tough one for Sheenus, and I mean, if you couple that with the fact that he hasn't been able to train at his, you know, the gym that he's established himself at in Kansas City, or outside of Kansas City, he's gone back to Citadel Martial Arts in Boston, Lozons as well, so a good strength, a training partner over there, good guys to get ready for making that trip over to Australia. You look at it for Sheenus, I mean, he was a big of an oddball coming into the UFC because he had a win in 2022 early on against UFC vet four fight UFC vet Cody Fister he won the lightweight belt at FAC then he went over and fought with Cage Titans he won a belt over there he was their featherweight champ and then he goes on and fights Sadiq Yusuf for Don Shanis you know him for one thing and one thing only That man brings a storm in a lot of his fights. And he just marches forward. He throws hammers. His takedowns are powerful. He has really good, and I'm glad that, listen, uh, you know, Sanko seemed to talk about it going into the matchup. A lot of the commentators did. His sweeps off the bottom are great. The elevator sweeps for sure, especially the ones that he had against Fister in that matchup. But you look at it for Shanus, he gets himself into compromising positions in a lot of his fights. And I listened to an interview that he did not that long ago. And this was one that, again, it was with James Lynch of All Access MMA. And this was a quotable from Shanus. I think cardio is going to play a big factor in this fight because I like to come out fast and hard. And uh, come out sprinting and see who lands first. I mean, that's a tough thing to say Jack and then put into practice against a guy like Jack Jenks. You're going to say, well, why? Jack Jenkins in some of his fights decides to go out pretty hard, but in the majority of his fights, he goes out there and takes a really slow approach to it. And it's not a bad slow. He's got great combinations. He lands the body into the head. He's got a really good leg kick. It's just the fact that Jenkins is a very refined, cerebral type of fighter in a lot of these fights. And oh, by the way, he usually has a wrestling advantage in most of his fights as well. And that's what I worry about with Shanus. Like you had mentioned, the over-aggressiveness is a positive against some guys. It really overwhelms them early in fights. But like what we saw in the Sadiq Yusuf fight, sometimes just jump into the fire that much faster than you originally have to. And I will be curious to see who goes for the first takedown attempt because I think Jenkins has the advantage in the wrestling. But Shanus is in that weird boxing to wrestling range to where, hey, it is available. If he does find himself crashing into a lot of these engagements, he might find himself in more of a wrestling match than he had even decided. That's the thing about Jenkins, and I'm happy you brought it up. It can be a slow start sometimes, but it is more of a patient approach, I think, because once he is able to find his openings and land with his combinations... He's a pretty difficult fighter to deal with. And at 29, it is an interesting age for making your UFC debut because, especially at featherweight, not old for the division, I'm not saying by any means, but you are going to have to start fighting some pretty good fighters pretty early on in your career if you do want to rise up through the ranks fast. Because, like we just said, like, Sadiq Yusuf is out there and I feel like people completely forget about him all the time, but he's one of the better fighters in this division. There's like 20 guys outside of the rankings who could all probably have a really competitive fight with a guy like Yusuf. So I think the featherweight division is as deep as any. So if Jenkins does want to become that kind of 
next top tier Australian prospect. He has to get off to a fast start. And I mean, for Jenkins, really good friend of Jimmy Crute. If you go to Crute's Instagram, he's wearing the fur Jenkins shirts. He's really trying to boost them up. And he's been talking about him for a really long time. I was reading an article that the All-Star MMA did on Jenkins with some nice quotables from Crute. But if you look at Jenkins, I mean, eight of his 10 wins are by finish. He's got a varied amount of finish. It's not like all of them are by submission. And the other nice thing that you do like to see out of it in totality is the fact that he's won seven fights in a row. And out of his two losses, one of them, they rematched. And in that fight, he was able to go out there and get the finish win. He was a big favorite on Contender Series of minus 330 against Freddie Emiliano Linares. But in that one, he was able to just grind him right out. Going back and watching his fights with Eternal, he was able to go out there, wear on his opponents, really utilize a great boxing exchange. And I, you hate to compare prospects from similar countries, but there's a lot of similarities and familiarities between a guy like Jenkins, who's representing Victoria, to a guy like Perth's own Jack Della Maddalena in their boxing, in their well-roundedness. We haven't really seen Della diluge into his offensive wrestling in the UFC, but I do expect to see a little bit of it out of Jenkins. It's just the fact that Don Shane is at featherweight's normally going to be at a big height and reach disadvantage in this fight. One inch of height, one inch of reach That's at five point. foot six. So there's a really good shot on the underdog in Don Shanis in this one to overwhelm, to utilize his wrestling. Some of those sweeps, he's got really sneaky jiu-jitsu. Great ground and pound, too, out of Shanis. How long is the flight from Boston to Australia? Like, I hope he gave himself a it's ton probably of time. Boston, L.A., just, L.A. That's about Australia. as far apart on the world, though, as you could get. Like, uh, so for Shanis, hopefully he did give himself time to, like, really adjust well, the time and, and all that. And, and Shanis did talk about it in that interview with James Lynch. Like, he took that fight on really short notice against Sadiq Yusuf, and he said it was the worst weight cut he's ever had because of the start of the week when he got the call he was 170 pounds and he had to cut it to 146 so this one it's planned he's ready for it no big deal there this fight was announced by team iridium on october 31st these guys have known about this for a really long time look at the odds jenkins is about a three to one favorite in the matchup we have a look at the topology votes matt surprised us there to you i'm gonna say over under the fans have been like insane polar opposites in some of these fights but i will say over under 85% Jenkins? I'll say over, because like you said, they've been pretty one-sided. Yeah, and it's way over. 728 total votes, 92% Jenkins, 23% by decision, 67% by knockout. For the 8% that have Shanus, 48% by decision, 33% by knockout. I'll go with Jack Jenkins. I don't necessarily love the line. I think he, again, he's, he's a little bit more of a reserved fighter. Whether it's three rounds or five rounds, I would give him advantages in the longevity in these fights. Don Shanus is like meatloaf like way back when kids are batter to hell, hell. Uh, and, he, and he really lets it all hang loose i still just think jack jenkins is the more refined product out of the two and that's what i keep on going back to and for that reason i do have to pick jack jenkins in the matchup both of us going with jenkins in a fight at featherweight his ufc debut some big time fights on this card nine australians on the list we can't wait for it keep locked in with fighting apex we always say let's get into it With Nasrat Hakpras out of the matchup, it was reported on January 5th by Gaston Reno that we have Argentina's own Francisco Prado making a short notice UFC debut a little bit over a month to get ready for this matchup for the 20-year-old champion of Samurai Fight House. You might have heard of that promotion before. Eileen Perez was a champ over there, made her debut last year. Prado taking on Jamie Mullerkey in this matchup. And if you could talk about phenoms in the prospect world francisco prado is one of those fighters every win a finish he's taken on a varying level of competition and now he gets to debut against a 
not necessarily top rank guy out of Australia, but for Jamie Mullerkey, I'd say he's at least a household name for MMA fans at this point. He's had some absolute burn yes. burners. He had a very contentious win his last time out against Michael Johnson, got dropped really early on in one of the quick quickest flurries that you're ever going to see out there. And then he rallied back, wins the split decision there. He had a fight of the night in his UFC debut against Brad Riddell. He has a loss to Farhasiam. He has a loss to uh, Jalen Turner where the right hook, the knees, everything kind of took over in that one. But a knockout went over Kama Worthy where he just put him on skates and a win over Devontae Smith. I've really cemented him as an interesting fighter in this lightweight division. So now 3-3 three and three in the UFC since making that debut in 2019 for... The guy representing a big-time gym in Australia, Jamie Mullerkey, a training partner of Alexander Volkanovsky. A lot of guys on this card can probably say that. But in this matchup, Matt, like you look at Uber prospects coming in very, very young. You think of like the Chase Hoopers, the Sage Northcuts. Now we have Francisco Prado. I did a lot of tape study and a lot of it's readily available. He kind of dissect the record out there of some of his opponents. Combined opponent record of the 11 wins is 61 and 48. So it is what it is. His best wins probably his last one over Jose Barrios uh, Vargas, who was 13 and 3. And then I went through his record and it's kind of a salty 13 and 3. And then I went through Adrian Peroni, who was 6 and 0. And it's a really salty win. So you go down through it. You watch a lot of these fights, Matt. And Prado goes through a lot of adversity in some of them, and he ends up winning them all. This is the weird thing about when, this is the weird thing about Jamie Mullerkey, I should say. He's very skilled. He's a good striker. He's a good grappler. He's a good wrestler. Like not, he doesn't really have one glaring weakness in his game, except for the intangibles. He's not the fastest guy on the outside. He is a little bit stiff when he throws, and that's going to be the really interesting thing. If Prado can get on the inside, like we have seen some fighters do, and really utilize his boxing, I really do think he can make life hell for Jamie Mullerkey, just because Mullerkey and the style with which he strikes is a lot of straight punches. He hasn't really perfected what I've now just coined the Brian Ortega zone, where it's hey. My arms are too long for me to punch you. I don't really know what to do when you're close. I'm going to get elbows. If Jimmy Mullerkey had some of those attacks that were a little bit more up the middle, I think it would have good synergy with the rest of his game because he has a lot to deal with when he does get momentum with some of his own strikes. Like I said, he's a little wonky, but he has deceiving power. Like, you wouldn't look at Jamie Mullerkey and think, wow, this guy has, like, decent power from the outside. But when he is able to land clean shots, he does have good effects on his opponents. So I will be curious to see how Prado deals with a lot of that adversity because that's what I keep on going back to. Prado is probably the more, I don't know, the flashier out of these two. I guess it doesn't take much to be flashier than Jamie Mullerkey, but if Prado can make this fight, I guess just over really quick, he should have a great opportunity to, but that seems to be the story with Jamie Mullerkey. He's like a Julian Arosa. He's like a Damon Jackson. Like, if you hit him early, you might be able to finish him, but if he does get over that initial threshold, if he can weather that first storm, Jamie Mullerkey then gets to show you all the skills that he does have, and he becomes a much more difficult fight as a result. Well, Matt, for Francisco Prado, for this uber prospect you go back and you watch his fights again his last time out he took on blue jays ace jose barrios vargas and in that matchup they're fighting in a laser show like i didn't really understand that one there's lights like going alley. i thought like is this like a video effect they added on after the fact but the lights are on the guy so it was there but you watch that fight and i mean he moves a lot you go back and you watch a lot of these prado fights i think he's added an element of i move my head i move my body all the time to try and show different looks to disguise what i'm gonna do but when he goes out there and he decides to throw he throws everything into oh, his yeah. shots and he throws hooks he throws a lot of looping shots he throws a lot of really good kicks 
Um, and he ends up going out there and just has some crazy striking blitzes. But I went through and I watched a lot of these fights. The fight against Peroni was for the belt. That's when he challenged for it. It was on one of those really slippery mats. The other thing was Samurai Fight House. Some fights are in really small cages. Some fights are in the biggest cage you've ever seen in your entire life. So against Peroni in that one, I mean, he goes out there. He's dancing on the balls of his feet again. He goes. He gets caught by a guillotine. The whole first round, he's in a guillotine. And then the second round, he gets the takedown. He goes out there, and he looks really good. But in a lot of these fights, like... Prado's takedown defense has been tested, and it's not that great. Prado tends to tire as the first round goes on, and then in the second round, the wheels completely fall off. And going through a lot of these fights, the fight that he had against Hugo Nogueira, which they list as it's it's Hugo and then his nickname, if you do go back and watch the fight. In that one, Hugo looked like a blown-up bantamweight with a little bit of a belly. And he was completely outstriking Prado. He ends up going out there in the first round, just absolutely blitzes him. And then Prado comes back in the second round. You might say, well, Craig, he's a young guy. He's 20. He's won every single fight. He's won them all by finish and some of them in the second round and further on. Yes, he has, but he hasn't really taken on the greatest level of competition. And I, I just think parts and parcels, they're all there for Prado. I, I think this is way too big of a matchup for him against Mahler Keith. It might be, but I, I think we're discrediting Prado a little bit too much, if I'm being honest. Every fight with Jamie Mahler Key is, he gets finished early, or at least gets clipped and hurt early, or he's able to weather that storm and look really good in round two, round three. Prado's going to bring that exact game plan that we've seen so many other opponents bring into the cage with Mullerky uh, before, and Mullerky does lose some of those fights that we've seen. It's like when we talked about Renat Fakhradinov when he fought Brian Battle. We said he was a bad striker. He would outdrop Brian Battle every single time he touched him. I just, I think with Prado, with his youth and with some of the intangibles he does have, with some of the X factors he's had outside the ring, I don't think that we can say, oh, Prado, this is a step too far. Just because with Mullerky, it's been a lot of close fights. He does get hurt in a lot of these fights too, and if Prado hurts him early he could definitely get the finish i just think with malarkey he has to be able to weather that early storm and and sometimes he can do that even though he does seem to get hurt quite a bit in these fights and other times he's not able to and he gets finished quite early i'm just going to be really curious to see where malarkey is in his career because malarkey is kind of one of those fringe like 25 to 20 guys i'd say he's not necessarily close to the top 15 but he's gonna offer a difficult fight to pretty much anybody well we'll see if prado can go out there he loves to utilize those typical freestyle wrestling takedowns he'll go double and then i'll switch over to a single has a lot of success there takedown defense isn't great from prado but he has some good sweeps but he can also get held in position for quite a bit in his fights so we'll see how that translates against a primary striker in jamie mullerkey a guy who can switch it up every now and again the odds do favor jamie mullerkey in the matchup about a minus 250 favorite we have a look at the topology mats vote surprise us there to you I have no idea where there's these are going to be because again prado 11 and 0 all finishes he's only 20 years old I'm going to say over under 70% malarkey, but I really have no idea. I think it'll be over just because these have been quite ridiculous. And it is slightly over. So 617 total votes, 74% malarkey, 57% by decision, 34% by knockout for the 26% that are Prado, 67% by knockout. I think a pro this is going to be the, the most lukewarm take I've ever had. I think Prado wins he'll get the knockout over Malarkey. I don't see oh, him yeah. knocking out Jamie Malarkey in this fight at all. I, I'm surprised that Francisco Prado's matched up with Jamie Malarkey. What's, like, this it blew my mind after I watched the tape that this is a real fight that's going to happen in the UFC. 
Uh, this is where I zag a little bit. I just think with Malarkey, he is that slow starter, and we've seen him get cracked so many times. So when your opponent matches that exact archetype of a fighter who can take advantage of it, I could see him winning and uh, winning early by stoppage. I really could with Prado. I think he does have the decided hand speed advantage if he is able to get on the inside. I worry about him eating those shots on his way in, and I do worry about what he's going to look like after the first round. So for those reasons, I do have Malarkey, but I've just seen Malarkey get off to those weird wonky starts where he doesn't look great, he's not throwing as much volume as you'd like, and he eats a lot of big shots. So I think there is a world where Prado can go out there and get the finish, but I do have Mullerkey. Both of us going with New South Wales' own Jamie Mullerkey to get the win in this lightweight division. Title fight up at the top of this card in the division between Makachev and Alexander Volkanovsky. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Name Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. Shannon Ross may have lost by TKO on week two of Dana White's Contender Series last summer, and his last win may be back in 2020, but regardless of all of that, he's still making his USC debut, and this is a big-time opportunity for the man that's representing Queensland, Australia, the Turkish delight, Shannon Ross, taking on K.R. Cletuson Rodriguez, Matt, KR didn't make our MMA nickname tier list, but C-A-M-A, what do you make of the nickname? I would have put it so far down on the list it wouldn't have been on the screen. If we had a Y or Z tier, that's where that would have gone. Well, we have the former and I'm talking eternal flyweight champ in Shannon Ross. Eternal getting a lot of the shine. You saw Jack Della from that organization. He's on this card. You saw Jack Jenkins from that organization. He's on this card. Cam O'Neill, gotta feel like a proud father. Casey O'Neill's in the UFC, eternal champ in the UFC. It's just it's just a great time for Eternal MMA. But when you look at it for Shannon Ross, I'll throw it up there. I mean, after his fight on Contender Series, he loses to Vinicius Salvador. He is a pretty big favorite in that fight. Neither guy had had, you know, like Ross hadn't fought in a while, but Salvador hadn't taken on a good level of competition. So you didn't know what you were going to see. Ross got dropped three times in that. Uh, he got hit by a lot of hooks. He kept coming for more until he got knocked down for the third time in the second round. But for Ross, you know the toughness. The wrestling's there. His boxing's quite good. His durability's obviously a little bit of a question mark. He is 13-6. and six. He's 33, and he is a, a former or maybe current mechanic. And listen, I have a lot of respect for people in the trade, so friggin' shouts to him. But if you do go down through it and you do look at it, he lost to Ashkan Mokhtarian back in 2016 for a title over with Eternal. That was up a weight class of man and weight. He's had some fights against a decent level of competition. Maybe he not never really had that run on the regional scene, though, and that was the rough thing to see. Like, even fighters who might not have the greatest run in the UFC or who you have pro or who you think could be a really high-level prospect and they just never really develop, they all go on that run in the regional scene where they have 11, 12-fight win streaks. Shannon Ross, unfortunately, never had that, and he was losing to guys who we do know nowadays, so it's not really the end of the world, but it is a little bit unfortunate to see. Normally, you do like to see them go on that, you know, 8, 9, 10-fight win streak at some point on the regional career. And for Shannon, I mean, you go down through it, you look at the combined opponent record pre-UFC, it was 44 and 30, so it wasn't necessarily the best, like we said, but with Eternal, with the ACB when they used to go down to Australia, and Nitro MMA, and if you go down through it, he made his pro debut in 2010, and Clayton Rodriguez, I mean, he's 27 years old, so he would have been 15 when Shannon Ross was kicking off his MFA career. Rodriguez, though, he trains at a team Noguera. Like those Noguera brothers down in Brazil. And if you look at it for Rodriguez, he was also featured on Dana White's Contender Series. It was the season in 2021. Got a win over former regional champ in the state, Santo Curatolo. So he looked really good in that fight. Like really, really good. And then he took on CJ Vergara last year. He lost that fight by split decision. If you go down through it, you look at it on MMA decisions. Uh, 
11 scored at 29-28, Rodriguez. 3 scored at 28-28. 1 scored at 29-28 for Vergara. The judges scored it for Vergara. So, Rodriguez comes in a bit of a layoff after a fight that most thought that he had won in that one. And now he gets to take on Ross. And both these guys match up really well because skill for skill... They tend to strike very well, so it should be fun. And they both need a win. Like, these are two prospects. I, I, Ross okay, isn't a prospect. No, I, exactly. I shouldn't have used the word prospect. Rodriguez is a prospect. Ross is a guy who, if he beats Rodriguez, is probably going to get put in another very similar matchup to the one that he finds himself in this weekend. Because this is the, oh, Shane and Ross... This sounds so terrible, but we're going to keep you around until you end up losing to another one of these prospects. Because with Ross, he is going to make it an exciting fight for as long as it lasts. And that was something that really stood out to me, too. Even when he gets hurt, there's not like there's a quit in Shannon Ross. He's not just going to get dropped and then give well, up. He will continue to fight, but that does get him in trouble in quite a few of these matchups. Shannon Ross, I mean, he's closer to 34 than he is 33. But we saw a flyweight debut at that age years ago that had a decent level of success in the UFC. Can you remember him? I immediately think of Victor Henry up 10 pounds, but... Uh, it was flyweights, Neil Seary, and he debuted against One Punch, How that Brad Pickett. Yikes. You like that? I just think Clinton, they do find a very similar manner, but Clinton seems to be turned up like another 5 to 7% in a lot of those areas. And I really thought Rodriguez would have a lot of success once he came to the UFC. And the Vergara fight was close. Again, you guys know how I feel about close fights. Some fights are close. Nobody really wins. But I thought Rodriguez was going to look really good in that matchup. And he was never really able to dominate with any one area of his game. And I know Vergara is a tough guy to uh, get out and look really good against. But I keep on going to the prospect that we just saw uh, yesterday, I should say, on the card. Tatsuro Taiga looked insane against CJ Vergara and he really has been able to build on those performances and continue to look really good and I know not everybody is of that level of a prospect like Tatsuo right C now might be like a top 15 fighter he just doesn't know C it yet. CJ Vergara is our new Jalgashumagulov. A little bit yeah he's just a good litmus test for any fighter out there he might not win but he's gonna make it a tough test I was just I was a little bit disappointed because I was expecting more out of Clemson well, if I can be honest. And I, I thought Rodriguez looked really good with the striking I thought he won the fight but what area did he struggle in? It was a wrestling defense for Shannon Ross you didn't get to see that when he fought on Dana White's contender series because he decided to invite the brawl and the commentators are saying if he brawls to Salvador it's not going to go well for him and he brawled with Salvador and it didn't go well for him but Ross on the regional scene had a wrestling advantage over a lot of people and would use it so in a matchup like this I think Ross does have a wrestling advantage over Cletus and Rodriguez I think Rodriguez has a striking advantage here the odds have Rodriguez as the favorite we'll have a look at the topology vote surprise to us there to you there's a man with four kids and Shannon Ross Matt I don't think he's going to be favored by the fans I'm going to say over under 75% Rodriguez because they're wild probably there. over yeah they really are they're wild out there in the streets 692 total votes, 90% Rodriguez. The fans aren't making They're voting friends. in group chats. I'm convinced. They're like, hey, guys, all seven of us are going to vote for this one 74% by decision for the 10% that I've Ross, 77% by decision. So, Matt, when you do look at this one, again, I, I do think when it comes to the strike and when it comes to the volume, the varied attack of Rodriguez, I do kind of like him on the back foot. He's got a really nice check rate hook when he is backing up. For me, I'm going to take Cletus and Rodriguez in the matchup. But Shannon Ross, a great opportunity here. Kind of close to home, although it's all the way diagonally across the country. So he has a shot in Western Australia to pull out the win. But I'm going to take Rodriguez here. Remember what Jerry Seinfeld said about a good mechanic? There's few things that can outweigh a good mechanic. 
had to do with it anyways. A uh, really good episode. I do have Clinton in the matchup, though. I know I was a little bit down on him based off his last performance, but I do think he was able to showcase enough skills that leave there to be room for him to continue to improve. But that's the thing. Flyweight right now seems to have a lot of these really young, exciting prospects, and it's going to be really difficult for Clinton to differentiate himself or really separate from the rest of the pack when it does come to these high-level prospects. Both of us going from the man, or with the man, representing Rio. It's KR, Clinton Rodriguez, to get the win. A big-time matchup in this flyweight division. Some big-time matchups left on this card, including the next fight, Joshua Kulibau taking on Melzik Bogdazarian. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. Coming up this weekend at Featherweight, it's a card headlined by Lightweight Champ taking on Featherweight Champ. In an interim Featherweight belt, we have a couple of great up-and-comers squaring off. It's Kuya, Joshua Kulibau, taking on the gun, Melzik Bogdazarian, in a spite that kind of hits like the song Element by Kendrick. But I can't sing that on this channel because no, there's a lot can't. of words that I just can't say with my complexion. Good tune, though. Matt, we have this big-time matchup. But I'm really excited about this one because... For Melzik Bogdazarian, we were promised such a high-level striker coming into the UFC. And for the most part, he definitely has delivered. 7-1 as a pro. Lost his pro debut back in 2014 by submission. And then he just continued to hone his craft with his kickboxing. And he was a former WLF Wars kickboxing champ. He challenged for a K1 welterweight title. He was unsuccessful there. But then he really kind of stepped just two feet in that pool and decided to become a mixed martial artist and training out of Glendale uh, fighting, you know, Edmund Tarverdian, but also Muay Thai America Gym in California. Melzik Bogdazarian has been a really impressive prospect in the fact that he's going to defend your takedowns, try and beat you up on the feet. And in his two UFC fights, he fought Bruno Souza's last time out a little over a year ago. He fought Colin Anglin in the debut and finished him. And he beat Dennis Bazukia over on Dana White's Contender Series. The most interesting thing out of Bogdazarian is me not finishing the word series and just calling it Siri. But if you do look at it for Melzik, he's kind of like Nick Maximov in one respect. Totally polar opposite fighters, different weight classes. Say. But both guys won on contender series in dominant fashion. And then Dan and White said, no, I want to see you back on the show. They waited, and then the UFC signed them both. So for Bogdazarian, beats Bazookia, but it wasn't really enough. And then he ends up fighting Anglin. Now, he's been matched up in a couple of fights in 2022, but he was forced out of both of those. Now, one of them was against TJ Laramie, which is the second time they tried to make that fight. And one was against Joanderson Britu. And what a fight that would have been. I'll throw the picture up there, though. Melzik broke his right hand. So you hate to see it, but hopefully he's fully recovered. And for Joshua Kulibau in the UFC... I had no damn clue what he was going to be in the UFC. Debuted against Jalen Turner up a weight class on short notice, and he lost. And we didn't get to see much out of him. But then if you go through the fights, he had a really competitive fight against Charles Jordan, and his last two fights, he ends up going out there against Shailan Nordenbeka, kind of defends or at least deals with the takedowns, beats him up on the feet, and his last time out against Sung Mu Choi, split decision win. He had him on skates in the first and second round. So really good fight out of Kulibau. One of those fight of the night style ones out of him. So Kulibau now taking on Bogdazarian. I don't know if he's going to have some of those striking advantages that we've seen in some of these fights. Exactly. But hey, I mean, both guys should meet in the center of the octagon. And Kulibau is not this kind of world championship level wrestler. So I don't really expect that to be a part of his game plan against Bogdazarian. He does some good MMA wrestling, though, I will say. Like, Kulibau, it has surprised me on a couple of occasions. We, like, even in the Joel Dan fight where he mixed it in a little bit. Like, that was nice to see. Yeah, he hasn't been credited with a takedown in the UFC. But the defensive chops are there and the scrambles are there, too. Uh, that's what I mean. Like, for Kulibau, I do think he does have the advantage in the grappling in this 
this matchup. Although I don't think that's an area of either guy's game. We will see. What I do think we'll see, though, is trips from Bogdasarian. If this does end up in the clinch, he does like to use those just to offset the balance of his opponent to then open up some of his own strikes. And that's just a really unique tactic that not a lot of fighters do use. Zabit was someone who would use that way back in the day. Again, one of the great what-ifs the MMA world has ever had. But Kalibau's the much more damaging fighter with his hands when he is able to land those boxing combinations. Because he is a pretty heavy-handed fighter when he is able to get there. But the problem is, Kalibau, I don't like how he closes distance in a lot of these situations. Again, Marvin Vittori is the guy whose name gets brought out probably once every two or three weeks. It's just a guy who really learned how to be effective with his style of striking, with his style of grappling, and how to uh, flush those two together and really fuse them. With Kalibau, he does have the striking. He just doesn't really have the footwork to get him into his best position. And I think the footwork is going to be the most important part of this fight because Bogdasarian's not the kickboxer of a guy like Alex Pereira, who's going to march you down primarily with his hands and then use his kicks as kind of the, the accoutrement, if you will, to some of his combinations. Bogdasarian's going to stay on the back foot a little bit more and use his movement a bit to then set up some of his counter shots. So we'll be interested to see what Bogdasarian does if he does get touched up early in the fight. Will he then allow himself to still stay on the back foot or will he be the one really trying to push the fight and land some of those knees up the middle? Because if he can land the knees up the middle and if Kalibau can land some of those hooks around the sides, that's going to make for a very entertaining and fight. And you saw those hooks out of Kalibau, but the thing with his footwork, I think it's coming along. He's a former Hex fighting champion at Featherweight going back to 2017. But out of Kalibau... He does have some of those, like, load-ups like a Darren Till, and he will throw, again, really good hooks. The thing that I like out of Koulibau, he will switch stances quite a bit, but it's not to a detriment. It's not, like, forced movement. It really does open up the plethora of his boxing. It'll go to the head. He'll go to the body. He'll mix things in. You saw that against Choi. You saw that in his win beforehand. You saw that against Charles Jordan, a fight that most people actually thought Koulibau would win that one, even though it went to a split draw. For Melsic, I mean, you go down through it like he's fought a, a, a level of competition outside of the UFC wasn't necessarily the best. He was 9-2 in kickboxing, 3-0 in boxing, but I, it really is tough to say. I mean, the wins that he had kind of when he went back in MMA, 14-second knockout, 32-second knockout, 9-second knockout, 7-second knockout, all in the first round. Combined nice. opponent record of those four guys was 7-8, and eight. so not a good level of competition. In the UFC, Anglin kind of fizzled out and struggled on the regional scene afterwards, and his last time out against Bruno Souza, the former LFA featherweight champ, it's kind of a stinker of a fight. Like, if you get three straight fights, uh, if you win three straight fights via, like, 10-second knockout, do you just think you're the greatest fighter ever after that third one? Like, you're just sitting in the locker room like, oh my goodness. I have the Midas touch. Yeah, like, what am I capable of? Eh. I just think this fight could go two very distinct ways. If Kalibau can be the bully and kind of make it an uglier fight, I do think he can have success. I do worry about him with his stance switching, though, because it will open up some of the straight shots off angles from Bogdasari. Now, he's going to have to utilize that technique and use it very well to have that success, but I do think it's an area of his game that he can show in this matchup. But again, we don't have this on the fight of the night screen because we think it's going to be a one-sided beatdown one way or the other. This should be a really fun striking matchup between these two guys. A performance of the night bonus for the debut out of Melzik Bogdazarian and if you look at it for Kolibau in his last fight he was a plus 190 underdog against Sungmu Choi that didn't win fight of the night that was a great one at UFC What's 275 a card that had the fight of the year in the main event between Teixeira and Prohashka Matt if we look at the odds they're pretty well at par between these two guys we have a look at the topology vote surprise to us there to you you got the man out of southeastern Australia and Joshua Kolibau I think the fans will rally around him I'm gonna say over under 60 Two and a half percent Kalibau. I think it's going to be close enough. I think they'll be over. I think they're going to be over. 
Look at that! No 725 total votes, 58% Bogdazarian, 74% by decision. For the 42% that have Koulibau, 81% by decision. I'm a Sung Woo Choi fan. You drop him three times, you got my you got my attention. Now, he had my attention before. Now, Mike Trezano did that, had my attention, UFC cut him. So, listen, just weird decisions. We like 10 and 10 fighters, 12 and 12 fighters. Keep that fat trimmed off. But, when I look at a matchup like this... Kalibau's striking continues to evolve, and he's really impressed me in the UFC. It's just a counter-striking of Bogdazarian is kind of that question mark that I have in this And that's what I keep on going back to, and that's why I do find myself picking Melsic in the matchup. I, I think he's going to have to eat some big shots, too, in this fight. Don't get me wrong. He's going to have to face that adversity. I just think he's going to be a half-step ahead when it does come to some of the movement and some of the counter-striking on the outside. Now, again, if you are going to have that counter-striking mindset, you're going to have to avoid big shots. You're going to have to land your own big shots as a response. But I, I do think Melsic ever so slightly has that advantage on the feet, and I do believe that's primarily primarily where this fight's going to be contested. And for that reason, I've got Melson. Yeah, and I think Bogdazarian off the back foot, moving side to side laterally, I think he has an advantage in this fight. He's a more precise striker to these two guys. But, Kulibau, if I've seen anything, again, he's continued to impress me. I just, I it, it sucks that I can't, or I'm not picking him to win this fight, but I think this is going to be an absolutely amazing one. At Featherweight, both of us going with Bogdazarian. He's an American citizen now, so Bogdazarian to get the win. A big-time matchup in this division. And again, co-main event for the interim championship. Main event, fun. your Featherweight champ taking on your lightweight champ. It's a great card with UFC 284. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. Jerker to the main card, UFC 284, the headliner of the prelims. We have Australia's comeback kid, Tyson Pedro, looking to welcome the returning comeback kid in the Cage Warriors light heavyweight champ, the Baltic gladiator, Modestus Bukowskis. And for Bukowskis, in the UFC, it was a little bit of a rough run and some really weird fights. That Andreas Mihailidis win, the loss to Jimmy Crute, the loss to Michael Olszczyk oh, by split decision. And we all know. And then, of course, the oblique kick that absolutely obliterated his knee against Khalil Roundtree. So Bukowskis took about a year away and then he fought Lee Chadwick, former middleweight champ with Cage Warriors, beats him by decision. Fought Chuck Campbell, who was 5-1 in a title fight over there with Cage Warriors. Won back that light heavyweight strap. Fought like the Modestus Bukowski that, kiss that we had seen with Cage Warriors before the UFC. And then he just landed a right hook from hell in the fourth round. Face planted Chuck Campbell. Bukowski is champ. And all of a sudden, on short notice, he comes in and replaces. And I want to make sure that I get this right. We're talking road to UFC vet Zhang Minyang. Because Minyang was one of those featured fighters, almost like what the PFL used to do on road to UFC. Got a win, and then they signed him to fight Tyson Pedro. It was like a lamb to the slaughter. But now all of a sudden, a fight that makes sense. Bukowskis has that UFC experience, the Cage Warriors Championship lineage. And for Tyson Pedro last year, I mean, he had from 2018 to 2022 away, three knee surgeries, all different kinds of issues with his knees after his fight with Shogun Hua. Heard it in that fight, ACL meniscus injuries, heard it training with Carlos Alberg at City Kickboxing in the interim. And it just, it really culminated with his fights against Ike Villanueva and Harry Hunsucker, both of those at light heavyweight and... He gave him their walking papers, so you gotta, you gotta feel something about that. And that's the one thing about Tyson Pedro. I feel like a lot of people would look at his last two wins and be like, oh, well, he was kind of supposed to beat them. And you are right, but that's the fun way that they have rebuilt Tyson Pedro, and I think they have done it the right way. It was a once-promising prospect who was on the borderline of the top 15. I think he was in the top 15 at one point. Then he gets hurt, suffers some losses, uh, some very serious injuries, and takes a lot of time off. And then they didn't just rush him right back to where he once was in the division. They didn't give him... 
I know Paul Craig isn't the hottest, but even like a guy like Paul Craig, that'd be a difficult matchup for pretty much anybody. That'd be a really tough fight for somebody who once had a lot of promise, and now they're coming back off all these injuries. What I do like about Tyson Pedro and how he's looked in his last two fights is... He looked how he's supposed to. Like, he won and was dominant, got finishes, was very damaging with his strikes. And I do feel like we are getting back to the Tyson Pedro that we had once seen before the Alir Latifi fight all those years ago. Because that was, like, almost a title eliminator at one point. I am not joking. Like, people were talking crazy going into that fight about how good Tyson Pedro potentially was. But, again, what I do like is we are starting to see that fighter that he once was. And he is showing improvements, too. Like, his striking's pretty crisp now. All the way back when, when he fought Kilo Roundtree, he got dropped early on in that fight. His striking was very all over the place. It wasn't very technical. I'd say his technique has uh, drastically improved ever since the time off, which is nice to see too, because some guys get injured, and a lot of that time, of course, has to be dedicated to rehab. But Tyson Pedro was definitely getting better in that time off too, and I think that's important, because for Bukowskis, it is nice to also see him get back to a closer form to what we saw pre-injury and pre-his losses in the UFC. I still think, though, on short notice, this is a really difficult matchup against Pedro. But my big point I want to say with Pedro, it's like what I said with Loma Lukbunmi earlier. It's nice that you are looking better, but we have to see you look better against a real high level 205er at a certain point. And for Bukowskis, he could be that fighter, I guess. It's just with all the time off and with the injuries, even if Pedro beats Bukowskis and looks really dominant, I wouldn't then be ready to say, oh, well, Tyson Pedro can beat a who's who and the light heavyweight division. Yeah, it really is a weird fight because, again, for Bukowskis, Lee Chadwick has been just off the skid since he was champ with Cage Warriors. Then he missed weight and he lost the belt. And it's just, he's been with Bellator, back to Cage Warriors. Weird there. And Chuck Campbell is nowhere near UFC level. Oh, and Page. older guy, 39 years old in that matchup. Now, Bukowskis looked really good in that fight, and he really did fight like the guy that you kind of knew coming into the UFC. And what do I mean by that? He's a karate black belt. He's a, and I don't know what it is. So he's a GCSD black belt. Is it Gintis Combat Self-Defense? I have no idea. So he is a karate black belt, and you see that in Bukowskis. And the one thing that you look for in Bukowskis, he kind of walks guys down. He throws singles, like one, maybe two in combination, reset, walks you down. Again, you saw that big-time right hand that he landed his last time out. His takedown defense was porous, kind of leading into the UFC, but it also won him the title, and he did look really good with Cage Warriors beforehand. And for Pedro... He could capitalize on that. Now, we haven't seen the grappling, obviously, since about, what, 2017, 2018. But that was a hallmark of his game. I know he got caught in that straight arm lock. Remember where you were when Cowboy Cerrone fought in Singapore. I do. But in that one, he got caught in that arm lock against OSP. However, Pedro was known as a very good grappler. And his striking has certainly progressed since then. So, I do really like this matchup. Again, you got a lot of movement out of Bukowskis, which could cause some issues for Tyson Pedro trying to walk him down and land some of those power shots because Villanueva's going to get in the pocket and bang. Harry Hunsucker's going to Hunsuck it will. and the guy's going to bang. So it is it is a different matchup that way. This fight was announced January 25th by Team Iridium that Bukowskis was going to be stepping in and taking the fight. So you look at the odds. Pedro is a pretty big favorite coming up this weekend. If we have a look at the topology vote, surprise to us, they are to you. I'm going to say... Over under 75% Tyson Pedro. I think it'll be over. I think the fans are going to go with him in this one. And it is 471 total votes, 87% Pedro, 84% by knockout. For the 13% that have Bukowska, 63% by knockout. So the fans anticipate a knockout. 
I just think Tyson Pedro has the ability to kick his way in through the range and land his power shots. And if it does touch the ground, Pedro on the mat over Bukowskis. Oh, he's a far better grappler. That's the thing that you do forget about, and I'm glad you brought it up. We haven't seen it out of Pedro his last two fights or since he's come back from injury, but he's a very talented grappler who is a really good back attacker for 205, which is a nice thing to see. So I do think he has that big advantage in the grappling of this fight. And Bukowskis lets his back get up against the cage. He does have really good movement in the open cage, but if you are able to cut him off, and start to really gradually slow him down, he will get flat up against the cage. And Tyson Pedro is a very good striker when his opponents have their backs flat up against the cage. You bring up the OSP arm lock loss, but how do they get in that position? Tyson Pedro drops him with a straight shot when the OSP has his back up against the cage. It's where Tyson Pedro is probably his best striking from, so I do have Pedro in the matchup. But again, even if he beats Bukowskis, we've got to see Tyson Pedro in there against a guy who's borderline top 15 or in the top 15 at some point. And we'll see if Bukowskis can go out there with the myriad of feints that he throws he cuts the, the distance with a really steady left hook as well. So look out for Bukowskis in the matchup. Both of us going with Tyson Pedro to get the win. Let us know who you have in the matchup. And then we kick off the main card, UFC 284. I mean, Jack Dellis taking on Randy Brown. That's Great a fun fight. fight. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's get into it. to kick off the main card of UFC 284 we have the 12th ranked light heavyweight it's Jimmy Crute looking for his first win in a number of years since he picked up a performance bonus over Modestus Bukowskis who's also on this card and he's going to be taking on a surging Alonzo Menafield who's 2022 is really unrivaled, I mean, in this division. Yuri Prashka had that crazy fight of the year against Glover Teixeira. Alonzo Menafield fights Askar Mojarov. What's the record? Doesn't matter. Scratch that record, break it in half. He goes out there, gets on top, dominates the fight. And against Misha Serkinov, oh my goodness, defends all the takedowns, that upper body pressure, goes out there, strikes, and absolutely knocks him down and dirty. So Menafield is absolutely on the rise. The takedown defense in the UFC, 85%. He's 6-3 since making his debut off Dana White's Contender Series 2018. He was on Contender Series the first season, 2017, then 2018. And for Alonzo Menafield, one interesting thing to note, he's been a favorite in every single fight in the UFC and on Contender Series. The lowest spot as a favorite was a minus 150 against OSP, but he's been higher than a 2-1, higher than a 3-1 favorite. He's almost a 2-1 to one underdog in this matchup. So, listen, completely unfamiliar territory for Menafield going down under to challenge the Australian in Jimmy Crute. And for Crute, he's been away. Obviously, the knee injuries between fights. Now, he fought Anthony Smith, knee injuries. Then he goes out there and fights Jamal Hill. He gets just wobbled once. It kind of almost dropped, gets back up. And then he gets completely knocked out by your now current... UFC light heavyweight champ, Jamal Hill. Who would have thought? Wild stuff there. Congratulations to Jamal Hill. Jimmy Crute, Matt, primarily known for his wrestling. Alonzo Menafield, his good wrestling defense and his absolutely wild striking. And he comes out of a great gym in Saxon Muay Thai, which is the same gym you're going to find Chidi and Joe Kouani out of. So really interesting stuff there, as well as Fortis MMA for Alonzo Menafield. But I was kind of scratching my head because you know what to expect out of the striking? But he continues to put on really good performances against a good level competition. And that's what I like about both these guys in the matchup in general. You kind of know what you're going to get out of both of them, but they always will add kind of a new little wrinkle to their game. I want to get your take on this, though, because I do think Jimmy Crute is in that Jack Hermanson class of striker, to where if he starts the fight out striking, no takedown attempts involved, he's going to look pretty good. If he goes for the takedown and gets them, his striking is going to continue to look really good because he knows he can put the two together. 
If he goes for a takedown after having success with the striking and doesn't get the takedown, his striking falls off a bit of a cliff, or at least gets diminished because he now doesn't have the threat of both. That's the thing about Kroot. He isn't a bad striker, even though a lot of his losses do come from the striking. It's just that... Once the takedown's not really there for him, you do kind of realize that he is a bit of a basic fighter on the feet, and it does allow you to eliminate a lot of the equation from your mind. If Metafield can have a very similar performance to what he did against Serkinov, just defend the initial takedowns, force Kroot to, to become a striker, well, Lonzo Metafield is a much more heavy-handed striker than Jimmy Kroot. He has more diverse strikes, I would say. I guess Kroot throws a little bit more in terms of kicks, but let's be honest, he does leave himself quite open when he goes for a lot of those strikes, so I don't necessarily look at that as a positive for Kroot. I just think this is a fun matchup because again, it's a peaks and valleys fight, but it's also a fight between two guys who, even at 35 years old, Metafield's still showing us some new stuff. And for Jimmy Crew, you do have to wonder how many more opportunities he's going to get against these top-level guys, while still being justified as a big favorite. That's what I was surprised to see. A guy coming off two losses, it's been a year layoff, like, it's been a weird run for Jimmy Crew because I thought he had a lot of promise, a lot of hype, uh, and I thought it was all justified early on in his UFC career. I wonder, A, if that knee injury took anything from him, because we don't really know from the Jamal Hill fight. He just got hit early and that yeah. was it. So I'm just curious to see what kind of Jimmy Crew we're going to get from this point moving forward. Well, I mean, for Menafield, I touched on it like with the percentage of takedowns defended. I mean, Devin Clark got one who really went to the well and he was able to get that win over uh, Dan Jung last night at UFC Fight Night Lewis versus Spivak. But you look at the losses. Lose to Devin Clark in a decision, gets outstruck and held down. Lose to OSP in a bit of a stinker of a fight in the second round. He gets bad. caught by that check hook. He loses to William Knight. He gets dropped in the first round. He gets held down just a little bit. But, I mean, apart from that, like, he's had some really good success. Obviously, his marquee went over Paul Craig, where Craig goes for the spinning strike at the same time that Menafield goes to land an overhand, and Menafield's able to land out in that one. But Jimmy Crute, really, really high motor on him in terms of his takedowns. 4.87 takedowns average per 15 minutes at a 75% clip. And you go down through it. I mean, he's had some of those fights where he's able to really chain them together. You think of the fight against Anthony Smith. He got three early on in that first round. He got eight of them against Michael Olszewczyk. He got one against Paul Craig. And he submitted Paul Craig as well. So some familiarity with the opponents there. But it's just a matter of... Jimmy Crute, the last win was against Lord Michael over, or sorry, it was against Modestus yeah, yeah. Bukowskis over two years ago. The fight against Lord Michael was almost three years ago. Crute's almost 27, so he's still a very young man. I don't know if he's going to be able to implement his wrestling all that well against Menafield. This is the big difference, though, between Menafield and the last two opponents that Anthony Smith has had. Now, like, if Menafield fought Smith at this stage of Anthony Smith's career, he could I'd probably... I'd be down. It'd be a great be fight, down. and there's a good chance he could win that. But what do Anthony Smith and Jamal Hill have in common? They're really long-range strikers, and they kick a lot for the weight class. Alonzo Menafield throws a leg kick, but he's not going to go to the head like those other two guys. He's not really going to go to the body as much. And I think for that reason, the takedown for Crute is going to be a lot more available because where Menafield gets a lot of his success from is that boxing range, which is going to allow Jimmy Crute to at least be closer to his opponent. I'm not saying that's going to then open up every takedown attempt. We're going to see Jimmy Crute look like Habib Nurmagomedov, but I do think that will help him quite a bit because that's the one thing Jamal Hill has to his credit. His takedown defense has gotten way better throughout his UFC career. That's the one thing. And he can stay on the other side of the cage from you and just blast head kicks for a lot of it and that keeps him out of your takedown range. Menafield's not going to have that same luxury and I do think that's why the odds are where they are but it is surprising to see a guy yeah. coming off two finish wins fighting a guy off two finish losses who's such a big underdog. Yeah, Crute is over a 2-1 to one favorite in the matchup. We have a look at the top all votes, Matt. Surprised us there to you. It is in Australia. You got the guy out of Melbourne and Jimmy Crute. I'm going to say over under 70% Crute. I think it'll be over. I think it may be under. 
That's under. So 814 total votes, 52% men of field, 82% by knockout for the 48% that have crewed. Surprise, surprise. 30% by decision, 44% by submission, and 22% by the knockout. Now, Jimmy Crew is going to go out and try and throw hammers, and he's going to try and close the distance and get his takedowns. For better or for worse. Alonzo Menafield throws really hard. But there's a lot more technique behind what Alonzo Menafield's throwing out in a lot of these fights. So, Matt... I have a hard time with this matchup, and I think Jimmy Crute's, like, way too big of a favorite to be justified at that. I feel like I've really set this up as a pro-Alonzo Metafield prediction just to pick Jimmy Crute, but at least let me explain why I'm going to do so. Metafield looked really good against Misha Serkinov, but it's been a while since Serkinov has looked like a real player in this and division. Every time he hit Serkinov, Serkinov, like, backed way Exactly, off. and I feel like a lot of people are going to say, hey, well, Serkinov beat Jimmy Crute, but that was at a very different stage of Serkinov's career, and I do think Crute has gotten better since that, even though the results of his fights might not suggest that. I I know I'm doing a lot of mental gymnastics right now, but please bear with me. I just think for those reasons, like what I said, I really wanted to bring up the range because I do think that's going to be important. Anthony Smith and Jamal Hill are two of the more prolific kickers that we do have in this division, especially Jamal Hill. And Jimmy Crew struggled with that because he wasn't close enough to get the takedown. I don't think he's going to run into that same issue against Alonzo Metafield. So if Metafield can defend those early takedowns and force Crew to become a striker, of course he's going to be the more heavy-handed of the two. And I think he can go out there and get a stoppage win. But I still think I'm going to favor Crew because he has more ways to win the fight, even though I could see him get knocked out in the first round. More ways to win the fight. Younger fighter, throws heavy, leaves he himself exposed yeah. when he does that. And Alonzo Metafield, I mean, you know, almost nine years a senior. But you look at it for Alonzo Metafield, I really do like the takedown defense. I don't think the price is justified for Jimmy Crew. And for those reasons, I do like the striking of Alonzo Menafield to capitalize on the matchup. So I'm going to go with the decent underdog in Atomic, Alonzo Menafield, coming out of Texas, taking on the man out of Melbourne, was split on the pick. I said Melbourne. I meant to say Melbourne. I, you got to be right on that one. A big-time matchup, nine Australians on the card. And in the main event, you have Alexander Volkanovsky taking on Islam Makachev. You're not going to want to miss. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. The return of Brisbane by way of Auckland's own. It's the bad man, Justin Toffa, the former rugby star representing Australia, taking on Parker Porter, a guy who's fought John Jones in yes. real life, not like just on UFC 4. Maybe he relives pa the glory days. Parker Porter is not in UFC 4. No, but... Listen, he could create a character, I guess. If you look at it for Parker Porter in the UFC, a bit of a mixed bag. I mean, he comes in, debut, it was like on 10 days notice, they just announced it. They threw it together. Chris Dawkins is going to fight Parker Porter, and I thought, huh? Like, what are we doing here, Papa? But if you look at it, he loses that fight, he gets finished. And his other loss is Jailton Almeida. But if you look at it through both of those guys, their top 15 ranked heavyweights at this point are Dawkins and Almeida. The wins for Porter, Josh Parisian, Chase Sherman, Alain Badeau, they are not ranked. I so, would put Justin Taffa in that category of fighters, though, in the heavyweight and, division. And for Taffa, UFC debut, UFC 243, which was the last card in Australia, he fights Jorgen DeCastro and gets starched. Then he goes out and fights Juan Adams on a John Jones card. And in that one, he gets the win. So then he goes on, he fights Carlos Felipe, loses by split decision in an absolute all-time barn burner. Then he has a fight of the night against Jared Vandera and pretty well gets beaten all three rounds. And his last time out, he takes on Hansakit. Harry Hunsucker, and he finishes him in that one. Now, that was a little over a year ago. Tafa was booked in a couple of different fights. He withdrew from both of them in 2022 against Jake Collier and Dontel Mays. 
the hump in the cage champ. But in the fight against Harry Hunsucker, Matt, for Justin Taffa, he has the distinction of being the first UFC heavyweight to successfully miss weight at 267. So Justin Taffa came in a hair thick for that one. And Matt, he's taking on a fellow biggie boy that's not Jairzinho. Justin Taffa needs what Nick Suzuki got at the All-Star break. He got a year of free Chipotle. And then Matt, do they have Chipotle in Montreal? Well, that was the quote. He goes, they go, oh, Nick, are you happy? And he goes... We don't have Chipotle in Montreal. So that sucks for Nick Suzuki. That all-star skills thing sucked. All of it. Sure. For NHL. For Justin Taffa, though, his skill set's very easy to define. Like, he has a good boxer in the heavyweight division. But I look at this fight as, like, a 1999 heavyweight against, like, a 2006 heavyweight. And that might not be a big compliment towards either one of these men. But for Justin Taffa, he really is a one-dimensional heavyweight. He is a very good striker. He is going to struggle with the grappling, uh, especially defensively in pretty much every aspect. But with Parker Porter, he has more than just one note to his game. He is going to go out there and maybe brawl a little bit, but at least he has a little bit of the clinch work. He does have the wrestling offense. He does have some of those other parts to his game. Now, I worry that Porter's going to go out there and just use the striking against a guy like Justin Taffa because that's probably what he's going to do. And at least early on in the matchup, I think that is an absolutely terrible wow. idea for him. But if he can press on Justin Taffa and do what like Tyson Fury did to Deontay Wilder, wear on the smaller man and really make him feel your presence. If Porter could use a lot of his clinch Don't work. call him Porker. Sorry, I can't believe I said that. If Parker Wait. Porter, I mixed the two together, can use his clinch work and his wrestling, I think he can have a lot of success in this matchup. I just worry that he's going to go out there and try to be a gunslinger early on, and we kind of know what happens when we do that in a Justin Taffa fight. If Taffa lands that one big looping hook, it doesn't really matter what position it's from. He can land, but this is what I really dislike in a Justin Taffa. Not just that he got knocked out by Jorgen Castro. Jorgen Castro and his eyes closed and just threw from the hip on that. Like, you can watch the highlight. Jorgen Castro's eyes are closed when he does that. Hey. It's not great that a primary striker is getting knocked out from a technique like that. It's not like Alex Pereira was marching him down, hit him with combinations, and really made him think about it. He marched forward and ran into a really a kind of large looping shot, and that's not great to see from a guy who is a primary striker. Jorgen Castro beats Sagano, Junior Dos Santos, and he's in the running to win a million dollars in the PFL. And... Region by region wise, I know Jorgen Castro at a Cape Verde, but if you look at it, trains out of New England, Parker Porter, New England native, and Parker Porter owns his own gym, the Heavy Hitters Club. Matt, the Heavy Hitters Club. I bet. What does that have to do with Jorgen Castro? Everything you said was disrespectful, and you called him Porker. Like gotta... I didn't mean to call him Porker, but that's okay. These guys are not going to be in the top fifteen of the division. Parker Porter is closer to that point at okay. this point, even though he's coming off loss. That's now fine. I'm closer to dunking than you are. I still can't dunk. When you look at the matchup between these two guys, maybe I've been working on my hops. No Parker way. Porter, out of this matchup, in the fights that he's had in the UFC, and he's won. What has he done? dabbled in the wrestling he's yeah. been able to go out there against josh parisian who can clinch and take down his opponents and he did that to parisian and if you look at it in the other fights yeah against chase sherman he was able to do it against alain Bado, struggled with the striking in the open space and Bado not a good run in the ufc but in the open space that's where Bado flourishes and for porter once he was able to kind of slow down the fight and make it a little bit boring that's where he was able to pull away so in this matchup you have the, the more refined technique out of the striking in Justin Taffa, a guy that can strike forwards and backwards, even though I know you talked about him losing to DeCastro, backing he up. charged forward. But if you do look at it for Taffa, yeah, I guess, yeah, he charged forward, closed eyes behind the black line. And yeah, that yeah, that's what I mean. Like, if you're a natural striker, I want to see you outstrike pretty much everybody. Like, 
Uh, Israel Adesanya can outstrike everybody in the UFC for the most part other than Alex Pereira and vice versa because they're natural strikers. We know where their comebacks come from and the accolades that they do have. Think about a Damian Maya. We never saw Damian Maya get like convincingly out grappled. When I see you get knocked out by a guy who has his eyes closed when he's throwing the shot and you're supposed to be a natural striker, there's a lot of cause for concern moving forward. And I think that's fair to say. It's like if we saw Jacare Souza get submitted seven times in his UFC career, we could call into question his background. Matt, it's a little weird that this is on the main card and the ranking you pay to see a 13 and 7 heavyweight take on a 5 and 3 heavyweight you have a look at the odds uh justin taffa is a slight favorite in the matchup we have a look at the topology vote surprise to us there to you australia versus usa i'm gonna say the fans have parker porter though and i'm gonna say over under i think it's gonna be close i'm gonna say over under 60 percent porter uh i'll say under i think taffa will be the favorite taffa is gonna be the favorite taffa is the favorite 805 total votes 72 percent taffa 84 percent by knockout for the 28 percent that have porter 79 percent by decision ntg fitness and mma's own justin taffa the bad man the favorite in the matchup the fans have him overwhelmingly to get the win in this fight matt do you have justin taffa to get the win i have parker porter in this matchup he's yeah. the more well-rounded fighter and i think that's the big reason for why i have him could he get knocked out of course he could justin taffa has really good hand speed he has good power too and i know he lost the felipe fight it was a very very close matchup but the way that he fought that could give him a lot of success in this matchup put his forehead on parker porter's chest and throw a lot of boxing combinations I think he could have success if he uses that kind of a game plan. But the problem is, that's only going to help him in the striking. If Porter then starts to use his wrestling, then his own grappling, I think he can wear down some of the punching power of Justin Taffa. I would like to offer my most honest apologies to Parker Porter if he's watching this video. Did not mean to call you Porker. Mixed together your first and last name. But I've got you to win this matchup. Yeah, I also have Parker Porter in the matchup as the underdog. So going against the fans and the odds, but with Parker Porter... I've seen his wrestling on the regional scene translate to the he's UFC to beat guys outside of the top 15. So I know he struggled against Jalton Almeida. I think with Francis Ngannou out of the UFC, I think Jalton's going to break into the top five in 2023. So really interesting fight between these two guys. The striking of Tafa, the striking to then clinched for the takedown out of Porter. Both of us going with Parker Porter to get the win. Let us know down below in the comments section if you agree with those topology votes. You a bad man, Justin Tafa at home or do you have Porter to travel across the world to shock the world to get the win Matt we have Randy Brown taking on Jack Dell on this card we what have the co-main event featherweight title interim featherweight title on the line and the pound for pound greats up at the top you're not going to want to miss keep it locked in with fighting picks we always say let's, let's get, get into it, it. Welterweight set to scrap. UFC 284 on the main card. The hometown guy, Perth, Australia's own Jack Della Maddalena out of scrappy MMA taking on rude boy Randy Brown. Matt, people love your sound bites when you sing it. Can you let us have a little bit? I'm a rude boy, boy. Uh, I'm not going to keep on going after that, but I am so excited for this fight, Craig. This is one of those fights where I don't need to see press conferences like Michael Chiesa, Kevin Lee don't talk about my mom. I don't need to see like Khabib, Connor where it gets ugly. This is one of those fights where it just sells itself. You have Randy Brown, who was one of those prospects that had a lot of hype, suffered some defeats on his way up to the top 15, but then was able to somewhat reinvent himself in his whole career, and now he's on this incredible run that he's been able to maintain throughout his last number of fights and throughout the last couple of years, but he finds himself in a very unique position 
position for a guy like Randy Brown to find himself at this stage of his career. He's now, and this is going to be used in a negative light, but I don't mean it this way. He's kind of gatekeeping, gatekeeping the top 15 from Jack Della Maddalena this weekend, and that's a very important place to find himself, because if you beat Maddalena, who might be the most hyped up prospect uh, non-top 15 at the moment, because of course you've got like shop caught out there, then Randy Brown's going to find himself in a huge fight his Whoa. next time out. And it's weird to say gatekeeper when a guy's won four fights in exactly. a row and built himself up, but Randy Brown, he debuted way back in 2016 with UFC after winning at Ring of Combat, Dana White's looking for a fight. He took on Matt Dwyer in his debut. And since then, for Brown, it's been an interesting cast of characters. Like he said, a couple of interesting fights against now fighters. top guys. Bilal Muhammad, Nico Price, Vicente Luque. He's got that crazy performance bonus win over Warley Alves. He's got a finish win over Brian Barbarina. He's fought like guys like Brian Camozzi and Eric Montano. But the last four fights, Alex Oliveira, the one-arm rear naked choke, the win over Jared Gooden, he beats Chaos Williams by split, and then he goes out there, and listen, you guys might not like him, but Francisco Trinaldo fought 26 times in the UFC, went 18-8, and eight, and Randy Brown said, hey, Francisco, you like being a mainstay in the UFC's welterweight division and lightweight? Rip that contract, but go 44. back to Brazil, have fun. Randy Brown gets the win there. Now, he drops Trinaldo early, he struggled in some of the wrestling, and I went and I listened to an interview that James Lynch did with Randy Brown before this fight. And Randy Brown was really coy. And usually, you know, you, I, I always watch Randy Brown interviews. I like to listen to him talk about his camps and about everything that's going on in his life. And he touched on the fact that he used to be at King's. And then he went back to New York. So lately he's been training at a Budokan Martial Arts Academy. A little bit at Belmore Kickboxing. Kind of cross training in and around. And then he kind of like let it slip. And it's on his Instagram that he's training out of Martinez MMA. So you click there. What's Martinez MMA? What's well, Daniel Gracie's gym? Well, who's he training with? Sean Brady and Joe Pfeiffer to get ready for a matchup like this. Now, he wouldn't necessarily say his corner was. He wouldn't say what they were working on. He he played it cool and coy with Lynch over there. So for Randy Brown, I'm eager to see what that means in a matchup like this against Jack Della because Brown is very good at jujitsu. Oh, yeah. Very sneaky. I know the Nico Price hammer fist, whatever. However... Randy Brown's offensive wrestling isn't necessarily the tool that got him to the dance. We don't see it all that often. I'd be eager to see if this is what we see against Jack Della because Della, what he struggled with on the regional scene before he's dusted everybody, was getting held up against the cage and sometimes getting taken down. Now he dusts everybody and knocks them out. This is the weird thing, though. I kind of disagree with what you say about Brown's wrestling for this only purpose. That's the first thing I think about when I think about Randy Brown. It's just he's become something far more than just that. Like, wrestling was what Randy Brown was known for early on in his UFC career. That's why it was a little upsetting. Not upsetting, but it was surprising to see Bilal Muhammad go out there and just out-wrestle him with such consistency. Now, we know how good of a fighter Bilal Muhammad is, especially in hindsight, but for Brown, that was the thing that I always thought about when I thought about Randy Brown's game. But he has become much, much more than he ever was just with wrestling. He has great long-range strikes. He has very good strikes from the outside. He has good kicks. But the thing about Randy Brown that I'm curious to see, especially in this matchup, is... Is it going to take him time to find his rhythm? Because that's the thing about Randy Brown. When he gets into the flow of a fight, when he can find his combinations, land those front kicks up the middle like Tony Ferguson, because Randy Brown has really good front kicks, he is a MFR to deal with. But the thing is, when guys get on the inside of that range, when they make it an ugly fight, Brown can struggle in some of those areas. Now, I, I know Vicente Luque is probably the name that I'm going to bring up when I say guys who have made him feel uncomfortable in those positions. And Jack Della Maddalena probably isn't on that level of striker, at least yet in his career. But... 
I do think Madalena has some of the positives, at least the aggressiveness of a guy like Vicente Luque, and I think his boxing is going to offer Randy Brown a lot of troubles, but I do agree with you. I think if Brown does decide to use a lot more of a grappling mindset and a grappling game plan, which would be suggested if you do look at him training with a guy like Sean Brady and Joe Pfeiffer, that should help him quite a bit in this matchup, because on the feet, this can be a difficult fight for Brown. I like him at the longest range with his kicks, but I do think that once this fight gets into that boxing clinch work, Madalena's just so damaging in that spot. Yeah, Randy Brown sometimes hangs out in the pocket for way too long and as Teddy Atlas would say like you're waiting for that receipt oh. and you're gonna get it from a guy like Ma Madalena and Madalena again regional scene eternal champ he fought guys like Dimps Gillies that was able to kind of again hold him and work in some of that wrestling so that's a fight that I go back to but against Angelusa 30-27 it was a really good competitive fight Lusa brought it to him he's now in the UFC ex-MMA vet I know you love that organization Ooh. I do never miss the shows but in the UFC, three straight first-round knockouts, two performance bonuses, fights, dead game Pete Rodriguez, a man who sent a man, a man who sent Mike Jackson man, out of the man. UFC. Fought Ramazan Amiv, got taken down early, got back up again like Chumbawamba. Finished shot. him with the body shot. Finished Danny Roberts Four. with Well, it was a flurry, but it started with a body shot too. And against Danny Roberts, I'm sure Jack Dello went out and watched that Mike Perry fight. We talked about it before the fight. Because he fought just like that. Just stayed glued right in front of him, right in his face, knees, body, up to the head, mixing everything together like a vintage Mike Perry used and to do. Madalena reminds me a little bit of like a prime Robbie Lawler. And it's not a perfect example, but he's going to eat a shot to give his own shot. The difference is his shot is going to be so much bigger than wow. anything you land, especially with your hands. But that's the thing about Madalena. I don't think he's going to just win every fight on his way to the title by any means. I don't look at him as like a Shavkat Rachmanov type of a prospect. I think Madalena is probably going to lose a couple fights on his way up to that top five, top 10 area. But Fights like this against Randy Brown are going to get you more ready for those guys. And I know the odds are very heavily swayed towards Jack De La Madalena, but this is a really difficult fight for him. But I have to mention this because I do in every Madalena video we do. I was really impressed with the Ramzan Amiv fight. I know Ramzan Amiv is a nobody to a lot of you guys out there, but he's a very talented wrestler who is a really hard guy to get out of there and a really difficult guy to stop. I was impressed by what Madalena was able to show with his skill set up until that point because, again, Amiv's not a name on your resume that's going to get you into the Hall of Fame, but it's a guy who's going to get you ready for those bigger names that could then get you into the, I don't know, Hall of Fame is a bit of a stretch. Like you get the idea. 2030, Jack Della Maddalena, he's champ, he retires. Dana White calls him up to the podium if he's still there, and Jack pulls out the paper and he goes, I'd like to thank Ramazan Ami for testing me early on in my career. No, but a good win that he has there. I have a hard time with this one because, again, all the hype's behind Della. Oh, yeah. You like his leg kicks, you like his body work with his boxing. He doesn't tend to throw a lot of head kicks or kicks to the body. So, Randy Brown, a little bit more multifaceted with some of that attack just based on the fact that he utilizes kicks more now. Randy Brown, the book's been out on him a long time. He's got candlestick legs like you and I have. So, I'm not making fun of him. I possess that same skill set. But... I also a skill set to have thin legs. He probably takes leg kicks better than me. I would say definitely does, but he doesn't probably. take them all that well. So that's one spot that he can struggle in. But again, from long range, I favor Brown on the ground. I favor Randy Brown in the clinch. Bit of a toss up because both guys have interesting games there. You mentioned Jack Della, about a three to one favorite in the matchup. We have a look at the topology votes, Matt. Surprise to us there to you. Again, fans. They'd be wild. I expect them to be all the I way. I think this one will be close, though, honestly. I expect them to be all the way on one side. Okay, I'm going to say over under 82.5% Della. I think they'll be under. Think they're going to be under? They're over. 756 total votes, 86% Della, 83% by knockout for the 14% that I Brown, 66% by decision. Randy Brown's one of those guys that could actually take Jack Della into the deep waters. Oh, yeah. I know you mentioned that Ramazan and Eve fight. Ramazan 
will wrestle round one, round two, round three. He's a kickboxer. But in round one, he took him down. They get back up. Della finishes him. So we didn't even get to see the continuation there. No, but that was a nice thing to see, though. Just him be able to get back up to his feet after the initial takedown. Because, again, Ramsey and Amiv is really good at just laying on top of guys and not doing a whole lot of anything. So it was nice to see Madalena just be able to get back up to his feet from that position and land damaging shots. And that's the thing. Randy Brown gets hit. I know he's really good at that long distance, but he pulls back with his head up a little bit. He gets up against the cage sometimes, and he does find himself in that Anthony Smith position where you've got your back up against the cage, you're kind of just throwing out front kicks trying to create distance. If you do that against Jack Della Maddalena, he's going to throw that leg to the side, answer with a combination, and probably get you out of there. I think this is a great test, sorry, for Maddalena, but I do expect him to win this fight. Uh, Randy Brown with that ground game, training with Pfeiffer, Brady, and Daniel Gracie, like that gym was the hotness. And then a lot of the guys lost, except for Joe Pfeiffer. But Sabatini lost, Brady lost. They didn't look good in those fights. But when you do look at this matchup, Randy Brown has all of those skill sets and all of those things that you want answered. And we saw that last week. And we we talked about a fight just like this, with odds just like this. Isaku Kinoshita taking on Adam Fuget. And we said in that matchup... Brown's a lot better than Fuget. Fuget's such a good striker. He's good with his wrestling. He has all those checks. And then all of a sudden, he ends up getting the win over the hype prospect in Kinoshita. But in this matchup, Matt, I like that boxing out of Madalena. The fact that he can back guys up and the length all of a sudden it shrinks it shrinks it shrinks and it's not a giant advantage randy brown's one of those guys five inches in height and what he's got four inches in sorry four inches in height five inches in reach he uses those advantages to his benefit until they get taken away though when it's in the center of the cage the one thing i didn't like out of brown is last time out i love the fact that he dropped chinaldo i love the fact that it was kind of back and forth with the wrestling and the grappling he slowed in the third round and it wasn't a good look. And so for me, I worry about that in this fight against Della with the fact that Della's fighting like legit. He is the hometown fighter in Perth. There's other Australians on the card. This guy gets to wake up and probably, it's, it's not a walk, but wake up and walk over and then he's ready to fight. That, so That's why it sucks that Randy Brown's four fight win streak has led to this for him. Yeah, I- like, you would expect him to get, like, I, I know I brought up Robbie Lawler before, but again, just one of those aging guys who was a big name, maybe try to build up Randy Brown a bit off that. No, it's, hey, you've won four fights in a row, you look really good. You have to fight up one of the most hyped prospects we've had in a couple of years now, who's not a great stylistic matchup for you. Both of us in the matchup going with Australia's Jack Della Maddalena to get the win. Let us know down below in the comments section who you have. Man, I love a rude boy great Randy fight. Brown fight. Matt loves singing Rihanna. Can't wait for the co-main event. Featherweight title, interim strap on the line. Make sure you check it out. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Let's get into it. Coming up this weekend, interim featherweight gold is on the line with Alexander Volkanovsky moving up a weight class and challenging for Makachev's lightweight strap in the co-main event. We've Josh Emmett taking on El Pantera. Yair Rodriguez, a former tough Latin America winner all those years ago back at UFC 180. I know you remember that card, Fabrizio Verdum taking on Kane Velasquez at UFC 180. But when you look at this, Matt, there hasn't been an interim featherweight strap on the line since UFC 206, way back when Max Holloway fought Anthony Pettis in 2016. So coming up this weekend, Josh Emmett, Yair Rodriguez, and we know how accredited of a striker Josh Emmett is. For the same respect, so is Yair Rodriguez. For Josh Emmett, 11 fights in the UFC. He's 9-2. and two. And if you look at it this way, Matt, 11 fights, 11 knockdowns. That's tied for number one all-time in the featherweight division with... 
His old foe, Jeremy Stevens. I bet he doesn't like to hear that name, but for Emmett... He drops Stevens, too, in that fight. He dusts guys. And for Yair Rodriguez, this guy doesn't know a boring fight. Performance bonuses abound. Fight of the night's abound. And he's had some of those stumbling blocks. I mean, you look at some of his losses in the UFC. I think of the fight that he had against Frankie Edgar. That was definitely a tough one. The fight that he had against Max Holloway. However... That was one of those ones that you really gain a ton of stock. The one question I'm going to ask you, Matt, before I hand it off. With Josh Emmett, he has a nickname all of a sudden. He does. It's CC0. What the fuck does CC0 mean? I have no idea. I I couldn't even begin to guess. Comment down below with what you think Josh Emmett's nickname is. It'll probably come out this week during fight week, so we'll have to update you on question mark kicks. But CC0, take on El Pantera. Matt, we know Emmett is one of those guys that he could be losing until the buzzer, but... If the buzzer hasn't sounded, he can knock you out. He's almost like a Derek Lewis in that respect. And he really does have a complete package of his skill set. And his last time out against Calvin Cater, majority thought that Cater won, but it was a really, really close fight in that one. And for Rodriguez, obviously you had that shoulder injury to Brian Ortega. So some weird circumstances for both these guys coming in to take this fight. But for both guys, each 9-2 in the UFC, the 1-0 contest, Yara Rodriguez with the eye poke against Jeremy Stevens in the first fight. I love this matchup, and I think it's going to be a really, really fun Oh, there's no fight I want to see more at 145 pounds in the UFC, especially one that we haven't already seen. Like, yes, Holloway versus Rodriguez, too, would be a very fun fight, because, hey, how much left does Max Holloway really have at the top level? And their first fight was close, and that's the thing I want to bring up. People scored that fight for Yair Rodriguez. Yeah. I'm not, like, uh, people think, oh, Max Holloway, like, I think it was, what, 48, 47, 49, 46? Like, the scorecards were for Holloway, but it was a close fight to where every single round was close enough to where there was a real argument as to who won by the time it was over, and nobody in the world thought Yair Rodriguez was going to be able to have that kind of a fight. Because, yes, Rodriguez is a great kicker from the outside. We all know how athletic he is. You know, he can mix his athleticism and his speed in with really high-level technique. But all of a sudden, he got them hands, and he showed off really high-level boxing, too. And that was a nice thing to see from Rodriguez, because we started to see that evolution in the Korean zombie fight. He got away from it a bit and was very kick-heavy against Jeremy Stevens. And a lot of people remember the third round of that fight for Stevens being on top of Yair Rodriguez. But Yair almost had him finished in the second round. And he probably could have finished him. It was just one of those sequences where, like, he's hitting him for three minutes, Stevens is covering up, and then Yair had nothing left in the tank. And after that fight, I was really worried about, ooh, Yair's gas tank against a guy like Max Holloway. How's it going to look? But he answered all those questions that I had in that fight, and he actually got stronger as the fight went on against Holloway, which was insanely surprising to see. And weird because of the layoff for Yair Rodriguez. Exactly. He didn't know what to expect. But that's what I keep on going back to. Uh, GSP was the guy who brought this up a lot when he fought Michael Bisping. It was, hey, I've been taking time off. I haven't been fighting, but I've been getting better. And that's the really important thing. Dominic Cruz talked about this a lot when he was off for all those years with his ACL injuries. It's, hey, I didn't just sit around and not do anything. Like, the second I was able to get on the mass and start training again, I was able to. And although Rodriguez has had some uh, injuries in the past, none of them are related to where you're concerned about one area of his body, like it's an ACL that keeps on acting up. They all seem to be like Gordon Hayward injuries to where it's just bad luck. But... If I didn't see that fight against Max Holloway, I would have probably picked Josh Emmett. Josh Emmett has the wrestling advantage, even though offensively we don't really see it a lot. We just know that it is there. And for Yair, his jiu-jitsu has gotten better. He's a good scrambler off of his back. So I think Josh Emmett might go for a couple takedowns in this fight, but I don't think we're going to see a primary wrestler from Josh Emmett. And that's what I keep on thinking, or that's how I think this fight's going to play out. If Emmett's going to win, it's probably going to be from his boxing and his power. I just don't think Josh Emmett's all of a sudden going to revert back to some D1 
one wrestler who's going to go for a lot of single legs and double legs. He's 37 years old now. Like, we're not just going to see him become a fighter. He's never been up until and this point. For Josh Emmett, I mean, Sacramento City College Juco wrestler there. If you do look at it in the UFC, he's credited with takedowns over Felipe Arantes as well as Shane Burgos. And yeah, I mean, he hasn't really been... The heaviest takedown guy, Felipe Arantes. I mean, just Brazil's own. And he features in a camp. And one of the fighters on this undercard. But, Matt, when we look at this matchup for Josh Emmett, you talk about the knockdowns. You talk about the fights and the fight of the nights between both of these guys. For Emmett, fight of the night against Calvin Cater's last time out. A fight of the night against Shane Burgos, the PFL's own. all-time great fights. Dusts him in that one. And then a performance bonus over Mursad Bektich. Mursad, where you at, He knocked bud? him out with a jab. That's how heavy-handed Josh Emmett is. For Yair Rodriguez, fight of the night against Holloway. Fight of the night against Stevens. Fight of the night, performance of the night. UFC Denver, the throwback against Korean Zombie. Performance Penn. bonus over BJ Penn. Fight of the night, Alex Caceres. Performance bonus, Andre Feely. Fight of the night against Charles Rosa after winning the Ultimate Fighter Latin America season one at featherweight. He beat Dan Hooker too. He did beat Dan Hooker. So Matt, for Yair Rodriguez, the varied skill set with the striking. For Josh Emmett, we're just going to pop that jab out there. A lot of power behind it. The man has a beard, Matt. So what like, what do you make of it? Like Grizzly Adams did have a beard. Is it a new Josh Emmett? There's a little bit of gray in that beard. There is a ginger beard. Not what I expected to see in it. I don't know what I expected. It's just, that's not what it was. I think this is a really fun fight though, for all the reasons we brought up. Yair Rodriguez basically has to be perfect for 25 minutes though, if he doesn't finish it before that. Again, I'll be interested to see if we do get much grappling and who initiates some of that grappling. Because even Yair will go for some takedowns. We haven't seen it a lot as of late, but early on in his UFC career, I would say he was much more of a grappler, would mix in his own offensive wrestling a little bit more than he has as of late. Now, his striking has reached such a level with his boxing and kickboxing to where I don't really think Yair Rodriguez is going to have a striking disadvantage against many people in the UFC. I think the hand speed of Yaya Rodriguez is going to be a really important factor, though, because his footwork's better. We all know that going into this fight. That is going to be very important to get him in and out of the pocket. But if Yair can land with his hands and frustrate Josh Emmett early, I don't know what Josh Emmett's going to do on the in-betweens outside of landing those big shots, because Yair does have such high-level footwork to where I think it's going to be really difficult for Emmett to rely on that one bullseye shot. It's like, remember playing Call of Duty Zombies back in the day? You'd drop a zombie, there'd be that bomb on the ground, you'd go hit it, then they'd all go away and the round would be over. That's what Josh Emmett's power is. It's that Bob and Call of Duty zombies. The, the thing that Josh Emmett does so well, if it's like for like, stance for stance, orthodox versus orthodox, is foot position and leading with a jab to cut the cage, I and then he's able to land that right hand. And for Josh Emmett, the crazy thing is, you look at the output between both these guys, Josh Emmett actually, I would have thought, Yair Rodriguez, way, output's much higher, footwork's much better, but Josh Emmett throws a very, very High level of output for a guy that's primarily known as, I'm going to toss a jab, I'm going to throw an overhand or maybe a right hook and just try and cross you up. So I'm eager to see what we get out of Josh Emmett. Team Alpha Male, the boxing team that's down there as well that he trains with. And for Yair Rodriguez, likewise, VFS Academy up there in Chicago. I would expect like maybe a little bit of Bilal Muhammad cross training, getting ready for a matchup like this. But he spent a lot of time with Izzy, Team Izzy exactly, Wrestling, yeah. getting ready for a lot of the fights that he had leading up to, but not including maybe the Holloway fight or his last time out against Brian Ortega. So it is a really tough fight to try and call. Slight favorite is Yair Rodriguez. We have a look at the fan vote on topology matt surprise to us it is to you el pantera versus cc zero carbon copy zero like i have no idea com like combat culture climate change Z i have no I idea have no what idea. stands for i'm gonna say over under 67 and a half percent yari rodriguez i think it'll be well over i think it'll be in the 80s oh wow 
No. So 923 total votes, 70% Rodriguez, 51% by decision, 42% by knockout. For the 30% that I have Emmett, 53% by decision, 38% by knockout. You thought it was going to be in the 80s. You tip your I hand did, a yeah. bit. But nearly 38-year-old Josh Emmett. The, like he's had injuries and he's had all of these weird ones we talked about it before his fight with calvin cater he fights about once a year because he's had like he's had knee issues he had the the face that got completely melted oh, yeah. against jeremy stevens but he's come back strong after all of these injuries and it's not like it's a it's an incredibly long turnaround after his fight against calvin cater about eight months ago so not incredibly long in the stretch of a josh emmett career so eager to see what we get out of Emmett in this matchup because the guy's got the touch of death. He certainly does, but that's my big issue. I don't know what he's going to do in between those touch of deaths. Like, Yair can stand really far away, throw straight shots, and is one of the best kickers we've ever seen, especially offensively in MMA. And I know we talk about some fighters having peaks and valleys. The peaks that Yair Rodriguez possesses in MMA are unlike any. Like, when he is on point, it's really difficult to get this guy to stop. It's kicks that are lightning fast. They have knockout power behind them. They're from every angle. He can switch stances. If the boxing is what we saw in the Max Holloway fight, if that's not just an outlier, if that's just a new regular from Yair Rodriguez, I do favor him in this matchup against Josh Emmett because he's the more active guy from the outside with his kicks, I think, because Josh Emmett's not much of a kicker. So he's going to really have to be uh, dedicated to those flurries and to the combinations when he does throw them. Now, I will say this. If Josh Emmett does put on the wrestling shoes and hold Jair Rodriguez down in the first round. We might just see that rinse and repeat it for the next five rounds because maybe he will have that as a game plan. I still think we're going to see it. I think Yair has a decided speed advantage. He has really good attacks going up the middle too. He has great flying knees, great knees, great front kicks. And I think all of those things are good enough to keep Josh Emmett on the outside of his distance to where Yair can kick him. Rodriguez has yet to get knocked down in his UFC career, but that's a tough ask against a guy like Josh Emmett with nearly a knockdown in every single UFC fight he has had since he debuted years ago. I like Rodriguez with the speed advantage advantage in the boxing combinations and the movement however again as i said the jab the fact that josh emmett can cut the cage like the best of them and he has the power and the wrestling in a matchup like this could prove out a win for the nearly 38 year old josh emmett in this matchup so both of us going with el pantera yair rodriguez to get the win it should be a great fight in this co-main event and then in the main event, number one pound for pound, Alexander Volkanovsky jumps up a weight division to take on number two pound for pound, Islam Makachev. It should be a great fight. Keep it locked in with Fight Name Picks, we always say. Let's get into it. In the main event of UFC 284, your number one pound for pound fighter, Alexander Volkanovsky, your featherweight champion, jumps up a weight class to lightweight to take on the number two ranked pound for pound fighter in Islam Makachev, newly minted lightweight champ as of UFC 280 when he picked up a knock him down, drag him out submission win over Charles Oliveira to capture the belt. An amazing fight, as always, one half your host and duo, Craig Allen, Twitter and Instagram at Craig Allen FNP, with me to my left, to your right, as always, respective socials raptors fan matt allen fnp and when we look at this matchup coming up this weekend volkanovsky i mean the win streak is 22 fights in a row pretty impressive he's 25 and 1 in the ufc he's had 12 fights he has had fight of the nights against mendez and ortega performance bonus against the korean zombie and in these title fights he's had four straight big time wins where he's been able to just hang on to that belt you go back and he's able to beat holloway beat holloway he beats Ortega, beats Korean Zombie, and then Holloway again. So the trilogy is kind of lumped in there. And for Volkanovski, we've just continued to see a refinement of these skills that were already very good. I mean, very good boxing, very good Greco-Roman wrestling base. And that's the thing. I heard somebody mention it recently. Wow, 
Makachev. His wrestling is so good. It's what got him to the dance. It's his best skill. And Volkanovski, he's a, an Australian Greco-Roman champ. And then I dug into it. He was a Greco-Roman champ when he was 12 years old in 2001. That doesn't mean a lot. His no. wrestling's good in MMA. Very. But that one accolade doesn't really mean a whole lot. Now, when you look at it for Volkanovski, Matt, like people are also going to point to the fact that Chad Mendes took him down three times. Chad Mendes won three or four takedown attempts in that fight and held him down for 45 seconds. And also had to work so hard for those takedown attempts that he was completely exhausted by, like, minute two of the second round. This is my whole problem when we talk about, oh, this guy won this round. Like, he looked really good to start out and then fade it. Like, you can just waste all your energy in the first round and win it. That's cool. Like, basketball teams can outscore the other team in the first quarter, in the second quarter, even in the fourth quarter. If they don't do it for all of them, though, it doesn't really matter. And for Volkanovski, he was able to weather that storm from Chad Mendes and weaponize his pace in that fight more than anything. And that was a really impressive attribute to see from Volkanovski because he was largely untested against the highest levels of competition up until that point. I believe his best win going into that was the Darren Elkins win. And yep. that was a great fight, don't get me wrong. It was very impressive. But even Elkins landed a couple body kicks in that fight. Like, Elkins made a good account of himself, even though he got dropped like seven times. I can't believe I'm def defending Darren Elkins in the Volkanovski fight, but my whole point is Volkanovski before that Chad Mendes fight was an exciting prospect, and after that Mendes fight was a legit like title challenger, basically. But we talked about this a little bit off camera, and I'm going to make a basketball comp. I'm going to talk about Bellator and the NBA. Volkanovski to me is a lot like Chris Paul. Chris Paul can outthink anybody who's his size. Like, he's that smart about the game, the X's and O's. He's going to figure out what your weakness is and then make it uh, just the forefront of your game. Volkanovski can do that. The problem is with a guy like Chris Paul it's not just a point guard on point guard league. The other team's going to put a way bigger guy on you who's going to be more athletic. And that's what I worry about with Volkanovski in this. Like, we talk about the pan for pan list. Now, he's pan for pan number one. Makachev's number two. Oddly enough, like, even if Volkanovski loses this fight, he's still probably pound for pound number one, because he's still better at featherweight. Like, I know that's a weird list and a weird discussion to bring up, but I just think for Volkanovski, it's great that he's trying to be great right now, but I look at this a lot like Rory McDonald trying to fight Gegard Mousasi. It's a very good fighter fighting a very good fighter. The difference is, one of the very good fighters just so happens to have a big size advantage over the other one. And for Makachev, the conversation the entire time he's been in the UFC is... Well, just exactly who he's beaten. And if you go down through it, you make the list. He's won a myriad of fights in a row since losing to Adriano Martins. His only loss back in 2015. He beats Chris Wade, Nick Lentz, Gleason Tebow, Cajun Johnson, Armin Zarukian in a fight of the night. Davi Hamos, Strew Dober, Tiago Moises, Dan Hooker, Bobby Green, and Charles Oliveira. And the biggest problem for Islam Makachev, kind of leading into 2019, didn't fight in 2020. And then 2021, oh, yeah. he really did pick it up. And he got the win over Dober, Moises, Hooker, and then in 2022, Bobby Green and Charles Oliveira. And obviously, there's a big skill gap between a lot of those guys. To go from Bobby Green to Charles Oliveira, now originally it was supposed to be Bobby Green, and that was on short notice, but you catch my drift. He finally was able to go out there, gets a performance bonus, the second round submission, drops him with kind of a straight shot as Oliveira's like kind of back, like his head's so tilted nice. back a little bit, and then just dog on a bone he's down dirty and he gets a submission win so a great win for Makachev there but I'm really eager to see what we get out of him in a matchup like this because let's break down their skills strike for strike who's the better striker Volkanovski it's not even close Volkanovski and it's not even close who has better footwork between these two guys Volkanovski it's not even close exactly who has um better cardio between these two guys uh I would say Volkanovski but we haven't really seen it out of Islam, and that's the big thing that, or that's yeah. the big question mark that I do have yeah. in this fight. What if Volkanovski can make Islam scramble a lot? Because 
Arvid Sarukin was able to do that in their matchup and avoid some of the prolonged periods of him just having his back on the mat where Islam could progress. And I think Volkanovski can have some success doing that. But this is what I go back to. Did Volkanovski ever have trouble making 145? Is he a big fighter in that division? No. He's smaller than most guys in his own division. Has Islam had trouble making 155 in the past? Yeah, it's like been a huge conversation throughout his career. I just keep on going back to, you have a guy who's like a borderline welterweight, that's how big he is, fighting a featherweight, and I just don't know what Volkanovski can do to get over the hump of nah. the physicality of Makachev. Volkanovski is one of those like cross-training athletes, rugby over to MMA. Like, I thought... Jared Hayne. I thought coming from rugby over to the NFL, I thought, man, San Francisco 49ers are wearing the black jerseys. Like, Jared Hayne's my guy. And then it didn't work out. But with Volkanovski, definitely has worked out. So when I look at this matchup, I go along those lines of striking, footwork, Volkanovski, wrestling. Uh, like, just, just wrestling. Just a blanket term. Obviously, Islam Makachev. The scrambles, it could be fun if Volkanovski. we get there. But with Volkanovski, they're going to show you thick boy rugby Volkanovski, like 210, where he's just like... He's a big fella. He's a big short fella. How but many farmer's wraps that Tim Hortons could that man devour? Man, farmer's wraps. You get that little chipotle sauce on there. About, about six in the morning, I bet. But when you look at a matchup like this, Matt, to me, it, it is tricky when it comes to grappling of Makachev if we do get there. Now, the cold cock that Martins had really early on in their fight, like kind of caught Makachev and he was able to just land that shot and just like a sack of bricks. Volkanovski's not one of those strikers, though. Like, Volkanovski's one of those guys that death by a thousand cuts, he continues to wave, and it's really hard to go against it. But Makachev in the matchup, about a minus 400 favorite in this one. I, I said before, like, we do this basically to break the fourth wall. Write my notes, and then right before we film the video, I just write down the odds really quickly. And I think I let out, like, a wow. Like, I can't believe that. But Makachev is a big favorite in this matchup against a fellow pound-for-pound -pound great, actually the number one pound-for-pound -pound guy in Volkanovski, who hasn't lost a fight since 2013. So it's been about At 10 Walter years. Weight too. Yeah, and the other thing for Volkanovski, to say that he is a featherweight, and obviously, I completely agree with you. He has lightweight experience. His UFC debut was at lightweight. And his fight against Smoke and Shane Young, who's also on this card, because it was short notice, it was at 150 pounds. So, Volkanovski does actually have lightweight experience in the UFC. And it was a giant win. But if if I look at this one, Makachev, heavily favored to win the matchup. We throw it on over to you in the YouTube community tab. And you guys have voted here so far this morning. 61% going with Makachev. So, Listen, Close. slight there. Uh, the Wiseman, I would love to see the fight against the Real Goats. Jake Paul versus O'Malley. Just completely out of left field there. Simpson, I don't know how, but Volk. Tom Wiz is going with Makachev. And we'll go with uh, Chuz saying Islam second round sub. And maybe Joe Volk is way too small for Islam. Matt, when I look at this matchup, Volkanovski has beaten Jose Aldo. He's beaten Max Holloway yeah, three yeah. times. Probably a Hall of Striker, Famer. Striker, Striker, Striker. I bet you going into this fight, I bet you the UFC markets it and says, hey, this is our featherweight goat. They're, they're going to completely erase not. Jose Aldo, just like they started to do uh, with Kamaru Usman and just erase GSP a little bit. So I think most people think Aldo's the goat, though, still. Yeah, I, I think there's going to be a marketing push, though. But okay. when we look at this matchup, Matt, we talk all about the skills of Volkanovski, talk all about the skills of Makachev. Do you go with the big favorite in the matchup? Yeah, I, the, the problem is, we've said this so many times, is X-Fighter a better striker than Islam Makachev? Yeah, 
Most of them are. It's Drew just, Dober is. The aggressiveness with the threat of his takedowns is so much that it's really hard to strike with your butt pushed way back and your shoulders forward. And that's the position every one of these fighters finds himself in. Think about Dustin Poirier, Khabib. Like, Khabib's a really good striker. Near the end of his career, he got better at it, of course. But, like, Poirier's as good of a pure boxer as we've had in the UFC. He couldn't really throw punches, though, because he was so worried about the forward movement and the threat of the takedown. Now, I think Volkanovski has Joe Lopez in his corner, and he always has. Marka not gonna have Khabib in his corner that could play a difference that still doesn't get rid of the lifetime of wrestling the man's had throughout his whole entire like life that's the thing like Islam it's not like this guy got started when he was 17 because he didn't make a college football team or something like Islam's been getting ready for this for decades and, and it will be a great fight like I do think Volkanovski is going to offer up the best potential for a really good fight in this division when the going gets tough I think Volkanovski is more than proved at this point like Ooh. he digs down as deep as a human possibly can he's got out of insane Submissions from Brian Ortega, who is one of the best grapplers in the UFC. I just think Islam, with his physicality advantage and with his wrestling, it's going to be a really difficult mountain for Volkanovski to climb. I can't wait for this fight. I do have Islam Makachev in the matchup. Somebody's going to get lucky win number 13 in their UFC careers. And for somebody, they're going to pick up their first, or rather, well, their second loss as a pro. But it should be a great fight. And this is one of those cards, Matt. Like, if we do look at it overall, again, nine fighters out of Australia. You've got Justin Taffa out of New Zealand, but fights out of Australia. Tyson Pedro the Australian training out of New Zealand and the lone New Zealander that is on this card he gets to feel a bit a little bit like an anomaly here we have a guy in Shane Young so a really really interesting card that we do have coming up this weekend Matt when you do look at it what's one of those fights is flying under the radar that you're really excited about? I think Madalena versus uh Randy Brown's could be a really fun fight again for Randy Brown it's unfortunate that this is what his win streak is kind of led to because it's a really big opportunity for Madalena I, I know I've been really excited about his rise through the UFC up until this point but this is by far his most difficult matchup and it's not even really that close so I think the fight between Brown and Madalena might fly under the radar for some but that's a really fun fight at 170. Giant skill check there, and then a skill check on the prelims between Jack Jenkins and Don Shanus. And listen, Jenkins, does he decide to go really, really quick? Because you know that, oh, it's out of my hands. I'm shameless. Don Shanus, he's a guy that burns really hot at the start. So can't wait for that matchup. Make sure you check out Question Mark Kicks. It's not going to be two hours before the prelims. It's probably going to be Saturday morning because I fly out later on in the afternoon. A big time fight card with UFC 284. Thanks so much for the likes, the subscriptions. Things went wild with UFC Fight Night. Lewis versus Spivak that way. So thank you so much for the support. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks as we always say. Let's get into it.